You are listening to a piece of the Salasin.10 podcast area. You are listening to a piece of the Salasin.10 podcast area. Level course, so, because for debating, we have like beginner, intermediate, and advanced. 
On top of that, our events, we do like national level competitions for public speaking and debating. And these competitions are also endorsed by the Ministry of Education. On top of that, we do consultancy. So consultancy is basically the kind of work that we do with our, our partners that are interested to be debating out there, or partners who are interested to uh, lobby for their own causes, but by using debating and public speaking as a tool to engage with the public. Um, we can acknowledge Abolition is an example of an advocacy program that we run. So the main objective of work is to get you guys to be able to watch a debate and also to bring the issues outside of the debating community because the debating community is pretty tight and we usually have events just amongst ourselves. So we can acknowledge Abolition is one of those times when we bring these events up uh, for the public. And this is actually the first time we're doing this like really outside because usually we do events like this in universities and things like that. Um, I just want to address a few misconceptions about debating because you will see some of the top debaters, not just in Malaysia, but also in Asia, who will be debating on a topic about um, government's power to issue printing and publication licenses. Um, a lot of people usually ask us at MIDP, is it true that if I have two kids and one is more extroverted than the other, I should send my kid who is more extroverted to debating and probably the other one who is a bit shy to a class like ballet or like piano or whatever. Uh, we don't believe that at MIDP because the skills that we focus on at MIDP, they are four. They are communication skills, critical thinking, creative thinking, as well as character building. These four things are skills, they're not talent. That means they can be taught to, people, uh, to children, to people, and especially when these children are not, um, you know, are not extroverted, it's even more important for them to teach them those skills so that they have the necessary skills, you know, to go get a job, pass an interview, go to an Ivy League university, all that that they want in their lives, right? So, uh, we are very, very proud today to have the debaters here with us and we have an event lined up throughout the entire day until 5 p.m. So you can watch this debate first and then you can come back after lunch later for a, a, a debate and another forum with some of the top media practitioners in Malaysia. So for after lunch, we will have the GM of Karangkraut, Editor-in-Chief of Malaysia Kini, we have um, the Editor of Astro Awani and the Senior Editor of The Star as well as the chairman of the Institute of Journalists Malaysia himself who will be here and talk about the issue of sustainability and funding um, in media agencies. So I hope you guys will come back. Is everyone okay? You guys look so serious and scaring me a little bit. Right? Everyone's okay, right? Okay, that's great. Uh, I don't want to waste your time anymore. Uh, our team will be here if you have more questions about MITP, about our classes, about our events. This is Izzat. This is Vishal. And back there is Wesley. Yes, he's saying hi. Hi, Wesley. And this is Azim. So we're all from MIDP. And if you have questions, we are more than happy to have a chat with you. And I can take more of your time to keep that going with Thank you. All right. So some of you may wonder what are the debaters going to be debating about later? For those of you who just dropped in, uh, they're going to be debating about that the government should not have the power to issue printing and publication licenses. Uh, considering how important information is to all of us, considering how much of an impact information has for our daily lives, I just want to get a feel of the entire room. Uh, who here thinks that the government should be allowed to 
say or to give out licenses for printing and publication? Raise their hands. Who thinks that the government should be allowed to give out licenses to print and to publish? Okay, who thinks that the government shouldn't have that power? And that maybe like a third power should have that uh, ability. Alright, so now it is the job of the debaters to convince you otherwise. So with that, I'd like to start the debate. I'd like to invite the six speakers to please come to the front and take their seats. Please give them a round of applause, everyone. Right, so for your information, the government bench will be represented by Daniel Mark from Taylor's University, Sarah Shafiq from the German Malaysian Institute, and Nanesh Agarwal from University of Malaya. And on the opposition bench, we have Iman Hassan from University Technology Mara, Rinakshi Rams from Sunway College, and Azim Nazri from University Technology Mara. And with that, we will start the debate. So, I'd like to say a few things about the first speaker that will be uh, speaking later, the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister is Daniel Mark. He is 22 years old. He is currently studying International Business and Marketing at Taylor's University. And when I asked him, uh, what is something interesting about you that you'd like the audience to know? He said, he is actually opening a cafe business in Taylor's University, which will see its grand opening tomorrow. So feel, just feel free to just talk to him about his cafe, and we're very happy to have you tomorrow, so please keep your eyes open on that. With that being said, I'd like to invite the Honourable Prime Minister to open the debate. Here, here. to be weaponized is once is something that we must fear in itself already and for that reason we will oppose it 
how would we approach this debate inside government? We would do a few things uh, in our, as a solution, our policy. Ideally, we would have governments that will not possess the right to license at all. These would be delegated to third-party neutral bodies that will assess whether people or any news agency should have the right to publish or like or all. The, the right to publish any news or media articles. But secondly, here's how these neutral bodies will conduct themselves. They will firstly have accuracy checks on their own, where um, it will be more accurate and less biased because it's not supported or funded by the government. But secondly, it would have limited sense. It would limit sensitivity to um, any news outlets if they were ever to be discriminatory or incite hate speech, right? You don't want people going around, you know, um, calling people by racial slurs. So this is our best effort to curb that. But lastly, all these activities are a measure of the news agency's right to bear the license. Is a similar policy that's enacted in the United Kingdom and India. So you can do a little more research if you're interested in this a little more, yeah? So basically, what we're trying to establish is a more trustworthy equivalent of a um, credit rating agency or like a election committee where they're neutral and they get in, they intervene in the situation where it comes to licensing as a whole. My first argumentation, I'm going to talk to you about why all media outlets have a right to their reporting perspective. The first thing we have to note is that it's the media's duty to convey the news to the best of their target audience's wishes to receive it. This means that whether you are right-wing or left-wing, conservative or liberal, poor or rich, there's a niche perspective that the news agency always wishes to promote uh, a topic or promote an argument or promote a discussion or article to you. So meaning, because it was the way that this news media article interpreted the events that happened around you, they have a right to report it the exact way they saw it and you have no right to revoke that license just because that is the case or you don't like how they're reporting it or doesn't make you look good as a government as a whole. It has to be neutral and it has to be transparent. That's the bottom line of it. But let's talk a let's see it this way. The failure to allow this to happen is the entrenchment on individual views, meaning you are literally saying that no, we don't like the way you think, you have no right to think like that, therefore you cannot tell people what your news article is about. So we think that's quite unfair as a standard if you're going to be a government and you're going to try to entrench your views onto people. The bottom line is that people deserve a right to report their perspective because it was their true account and experience of the event and issue. Before I move on, I'll take a question. On your side, would you also, would you have advocacy journalism, which means news reported together with, a, with an author or a journalist opinion? So, Yes, we can have that if you have the license from a neutral body. The bottom line is just that you don't have to be discriminatory in any way. You can report news however you want to, just that it has to come from a perspective that's true to you as well. That's what we want to champion. My second argument, I'll talk to you about why it hurts the manner of discussion that we experience as people, right? So if your government is solely in charge of licensing or giving you the right to post news articles and whatnot, then we suggest that media companies could feel threatened because they may feel like they would lose uh, their license if they ever were to report something that is not favourable to the government. 
right? We've seen this happen before. So let's just put it this way. That is the imminent threat of having a report license that media companies uh, would not want to report inaccurate or bad news to people. So for example, the Bursi rally, you remember that from a few years ago? The Bursi rally had about thousands of people coming over, but the news agencies at that time would always report a few 200 people, 400 people, and they would always report it in a sense where they caused havoc, right? These things are untrue, but because you have the government that controls the media, that's why they want to paint this perspective through the news, which is extremely unfair and unright to the real events that happen overall. Any effort to stay true as a media company to its purpose leads to the revocation of your license. That is unfair, right? We would suggest this. It is not true that status quo allows enough room for media companies to defend themselves, right? So the Printing Press and Publication Act actually claims that they will give, the they will give these companies enough time to keep their license if they go through the procedure and give them the right to defend themselves. Very often, we've seen this being, being abused by the government, right? The way they use it is just a mere formality. They will stretch out the time and they will still revoke your license anyway, even after you've defended yourself, which is very unfair, especially for the Star News, as you guys would have remembered from long ago. That doesn't exist anymore because the government was extremely pernicious in the way that they, they, they nitpicked the Star News and decided to revoke them for one single article that they felt was not in line with the way the government saw things. That is extremely unfair. But what about individuals? Individuals would feel as if they would lose their freedom if they couldn't voice out. We are living in a community that's crumbling, exasperated, and we don't know where to look for discussion. I will say this, it is not easy to have discussion overall. It's not easy to talk about racial views, but it is the environment that Malaysia deserves and we expect from our Malaysia Baru. And for all these reasons, I'm very proud to propose that these media licenses ought to keep their licenses and publish whatever they want because it's their true perspective of the Malaysia we are living in today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel, for that speech. Now, to respond to the Prime Minister, we have the Leader of Opposition, and that person is Ms. Iman Hassan. She is 22 years old. She's currently uh, pursuing a degree in electronic engineering at University Technology Mara. And when I asked, what is something interesting about you that you like the audience to know? She said, I like to cook. And I make really good carbonara at Tonya. With that being said, I'd like to invite the Leader of Opposition to continue the debate. Here, here. Because ultimately, what you ruin is the ability for governments to regulate our society. 
within our society. At this point of the debate, I'm not sure how exactly side government can show us how exactly they are able to regulate yellow journalism or journalism that disseminates information that is false or incite hate and radical um, ideas. Let's be very clear what the policy and regulation in our world the first is that you would have to apply to the Ministry of Home Affairs and you would have the power to grant, revoke or suspend the permits. But for you to be granted a license, it would be very simple. You would only have to register your establishment, pay a very reasonable amount of money to the government and accept to be under the scrutiny of the government. The only way for your establishment to have your license revoked or suspended is for you. It's only and only if your publication was outrightly endangering national security interests and causing incredible amount of social unrest. Because otherwise, we will only we all would always allow establishments to publicize and release information as normal as possible. But the last thing is that if your establishment publishes something without a license, you either get jailed or pay out a substantial amount of the reason why this is important for us to understand is that this, the barrier of entry for you to get a license is not that high. But the ability for governments to regulate and to ensure that there are not many enterprises that are able to give out false information as well as give out radical, radical information to the public is something that we exclusively have on the outside of us. But what did side government tell us? They tell us that, oh, we're going to have license given up by independent employees. The first response that I have to this is that I think the outside government was completely inconsistent. Because if they say that governments have a risk of abusing this power, we are unsure whether or not this independent entity also have, have a risk of not being neutral and also abusing their power as well. We have no idea who this entity is, what are these Yeah, the fact that we have 
right? And why your principal governments will have the power to regulate it. And secondly, why do you think a publication like this maintains genuine and credible news? I think the first thing we must understand is that the state's duty is always to protect the rights of individuals who live under the care. So it's also the state's duty to mediate between different interests of rights of individuals. So recognizing that, why does the state have the power to give out this license? While it is true that everyone here in this room has the right to give out your opinions and to speak your mind, you must also understand there must be a certain limit to your freedom. Particularly when your freedom of speech conflicts and infringes on other people's freedoms and liberties. So that's why you see governments in, in Europe such as Germany, Austria and Hungary criminalizes elements of Nazism because these governments recognize that certain speech can cause huge social disruption and ultimately infringe on the rights of many individuals. These are the things that we ultimately can regulate under our side of the house. So that's why it's okay for us to limit to, uh, freedom of speech. But secondly, why is it that we are able to maintain credible and credible rules? The first is that we might, what would their world look like under their side? Two things. The first is that it would be a free market of journalist companies. Ultimately, they will compete with each other and sensationalize journalism and make sure that they are able to give out information that, that is sensationalized or possibly exaggerated to get as many views as possible. So what they do is they give out false information, they exaggerate and they do clickbait headlines. This is how the dissemination of information and things. Can you tell us why a government would have no incentive to change the news or manipulate it in order to keep its power and relevancy as compared to a neutral body that has no stake or incentive in it to retain any power whatsoever? So, the reason why governments don't have incentive today is because news and media has completely changed before 20, 30 years ago. We have other accountability measures that are not just print media that we allow them to hold governments accountable. So we think ultimately we can get whole governments accountable. Before I finish my speech, I want everyone in this room to look at introspect your life and realize that there are many people in our lives that aren't able to differentiate fake news and real news. We think these are the individuals that we have to protect so that they don't feed into young journalism. We're very proud of you. Thank you very much to the Leader of Opposition for their speech. Now, to extend the case of the government, we have the Deputy Prime Minister. Now, let me just say a few things about this person. Her name is Sarah Mama Shafiq. She is 19 years old. She's currently pursuing her A-levels at the German Malaysian Institute. And when asked something interesting about you that you'd like the audience to know, she said, Growing up, I wanted to be a rock star, but that's pretty impossible. Then I discovered math and physics, which actually happens to be just as fun. I have now come to terms that I'll be happy even when I'm not a rock star. Let's give it up to Sarah Shafiq, the Deputy Prime Minister.
wealth and talent government. We believe in a world where you are capable of giving up information and having the best discourses. We think a world in which discourse is limited is a world where you are only boxed in what the government wants you to believe in rather than what actually happens. I'll talk to you two things in my speech. The first is why licenses in status quo is bad. And secondly, why a world with licenses that are easily accessible is preferable. But before that, a couple of responses. So the first thing that Iman wanted to tell you is that, guys, independent parties are not neutral. We prefer governments because we can vote them out. I think the first thing to notice, if all independent parties are, are exactly not neutral, then I don't think we should have election, uh, the election committee. I don't think we should have any forms of bodies to regulate uh, things that happen. And that's inherently bad because governments are more likely going to abuse this power as Daniel told you. But even more than that, assuming we are capable of voting them out, we never really told us how. Because we would think in that, in that side of the house, the world would be like this. Governments are acting to restrict information. What they will be telling you is that the government is good, therefore there's really no necessity for us to be voted out. What this means is, on the comparative, we will have more counter-narratives and we have more discourses in which we are able to critique the government. And that's the world in which your governments will be easily voted out compared to your side of the house. But then they told you that, hey, it's good, we have progressed. It took us 30 years. We are now capable of talking. We have now cracked down certain parts of the government. We think it's far better on our side of the house. If it took you 30 years, it will work information is easily accessible. It will take you 10 years. It will take you far easier and far faster for you to get those forms of achievement. If it's true, it took us 30 years, then the question now becomes how do we get it faster? We think that's a world in which we provide the obvious answer. A world in which you are able to access the most amount of information. But then they told you that free market journalism is bad. How do you necessarily quantify what is true and not? So we would say, assuming there are 20 news outlets and 17 of those outlets report the same thing, then you could necessarily identify that these three news outlets are pretty much inaccurate or pretty much not the most, ver the most legitimate or the most verified. So I think that's a natural check and balance within the free journalism market. But even more than that, the specific nuance in having the in having free journalism is the idea that there will be some truths that will be cracked down by the government in your world. Because there will be a lot of government cover-ups that will not be able to that will not they will not be able to be known by the public. That is only a world in which government provides, in which everyone is capable of giving up information and the truth will be able to prevail in that sort of house. So just to be clear, you're okay with everything we stand for here except that the government shouldn't be able to decide what's allowed or not. Yeah, naturally, because we think that the government is restrictive in nature. And like, I'll, tell, I'll talk more on how licenses with regards to government is bad my implementation. But let's look back at what Daniel told you, which was really important in this debate. He told you that there is a principle of duty of media to give out information. But what it also means is that you should not restrict people's thoughts. That everyone's ability to talk should be entertained and should be one that is heavily celebrated by the public. But even more than that, it's principally wrong for you to hold these publications ransom when you have the ability to revoke their licenses. What this means is you literally push them into a corner to talk about the things that only you want to talk about. Therefore, you limit their freedom and you disallow their ability to talk about the things which are naturally important, the things which people naturally look uh, away from. These are taboos which have the necessity to be talked about within status quo that only happens in our side of the house. 
suspended for seven months and the age doesn't exist anymore. In that seven months, this void of counter-information means that individuals literally had no access to things which weren't government-related or government-endorsed. What this means is literally seven months of you losing probably the truth and losing probably one of the most important parts of history. And this is something we cannot stand for, that the truth should always prevail and should always be accessible towards individuals on the ground. Now to my arguments, why licenses in status quo are bad. Firstly, there is a necessity to be friendly towards the state. This happens in two ways. The first, in not only gaining that license, but secondly, in maintaining that license. So what this means is, the way you write will probably be very soft and not very critique of the government. Because if the government doesn't like it, they will not give you, they will not be the ones to give you the license. Because why would I give my, why would I give license to a publication that would mean I would be actively voted out? Like it just doesn't make any sense. The comparative that we provide on our side of the house is, in a world where you have independent parties, they are the ones who will identify in manner of language whether or not it's tech or whether or not it's harmful towards individuals on the ground, but also still maintaining the information that is important for individuals to receive. We think the comparative on that side of the house is you only get clamped down worse. But secondly, the perception of not being legitimate without a license. In the side of opposition, it's extremely hard for you to get a license if you're not endorsed or if you don't actively do things in which the government likes. So we think the comparative that we provide is far better. In a world where it's very easy for you to get license, it's far easier for you to be able to produce and bring out to the masses uh, blogs or even articles that heavily critique the government. These are things that won't exist on side of opposition. But even more than that, the reason why that's important is in maximizing access, what we do is you give the voice to the most, like to the minorities and to the people who have the least amount of voice. What this means is within series I think the procedures, while there are parts that are true, it's far easier when you are rich and when you have fame on your side. So it's far harder for minorities to be able to gain access towards publication licenses. In a world where you have an independent party that's able to look out for these individuals, then they are the ones who will help them get the publication. We think the right to express your information is the right that everyone should have and should not only be limited to the amount of money or the amount of fame that you have. Therefore, we think it's far better on our side of the house. But lastly, we think when you limit the dynamics of reporting, that's where people are more likely going to revolt and people are more likely going to start asking more questions. We think, we think publications should actively go and search into grey areas and should actively go into search of finding the correct truth and not only being limited by the government. To be boxed off your thought is probably one of the biggest tortures that you could ever have. We think individuals should be able to access the truth at all times. Thank you very much to the Deputy Prime Minister for their speech. Now to extend the case of the opposition, we have the Deputy Leader of Opposition. Now this person, her name is Rinakshi Rams. She is 18 years old, pursuing her A-levels at Sunway College. And, oh my, and when asked something interesting about you that you'd like the audience to know, she said, and I quote, I have caused the Russian bomb squad to take custody of my suitcase at a train station before. With that being said, I'd like to invite the Deputy Leader of Opposition. Here, here.
My citizenship rights shouldn't be up for discussion inside government's role. We don't think an independent body is able to take care of the welfare of like racial harmony at best the same way that the government can. And that is what we stand for inside opposition. It's simple to say that we defend status quo, but we realize that maybe there are some uh, there's some flaws in the act that we have, for example, the total discretion to the Home Affairs Minister uh, to like, suspend the license, right? I think these can be up for review and it's much more likely to be changed in like side opposition with the new government where the parliament is more open in nature. We don't think you should completely remove the government's ability to permit uh, publication licenses. Before I move on to my argument on the legitimacy of news, let's uh, rebut and review some of the things like government said. I think firstly, their entire policy of the independent body is one that is flawed to begin with. Because recognizing that there is potential for it to be corrupt, itself is the same potential that we have inside government, right? The, the ability to be abused. Secondly, things like, and also if the government is abusing the power, we literally change the government because of that. We literally had democratic protests. And here's the thing about independent bodies, we can parallel this directly to the United States where you have you have literally so many publication sites and there's an influx of information which like literally harms discourse because white supremacy is so prevalent in like news sites like Great Bar and it's constantly pushed towards like uh, people because of the fact that they have like more money to print more articles. So we think that on that uh, thing itself, we don't think that the independent body works. Uh, secondly, uh, one later, uh, it's untrue to say that the Malaysian media or the journalism industry is one that is flawed, one that is pro-government at all times. Look at Starnish in 1980s, Putin started in 2015, and Malaysian TV, who's been fighting so hard to be like pro-opposition for the for like the last like a few decades where BN was in power. All of these things exist, and all of these counter interactions exist, right? But thirdly, on this whole idea of a minority publication license that it's hard to get, right, if you're an Indian person wanting to start, like, a publication company. It's super easy to register yourself as a company because you just have to pay the money. What's hard in most cases is maintaining your license. And the reason why people even suspend your license is because you go against, like, the standards that are set. What are these standards, right? Firstly, things like talking about Jusoli, talking about the Bumi Putra rights, these are things that will cause social unrest. Imagine racist people on Twitter quoting articles from legitimate news sites just to validate their racist opinions. These are the kinds of things that will happen on your side if you don't have a government regulating and understanding how societal reaction to news sites generally are. You can see that even with the ICER case, right? Uh, but before I move on to my argument, sure. Not on your side. Institutions are pro ISIL are actively surrounding us. However, counter narratives are very much little. We think on outside we provide more avenue for counter narratives because governments will probably want to handle towards the majority, which is anti ISIL. So here's the thing about the majority minority divide it's always going to exist. We don't think that the, removing the government from media is going to like, like going to defer this by like a lot, right? Because you see your side, if you're still going to have majority publication licenses, like maybe rich majority individuals setting up uh, publication sites and posting like racist views with like a few evidence backed by the majority, this means that minority people still probably won't get access to the media that you wanted to talk about. 
your sun game, the reason why your site is more harmful is because that independent body is unable to truly capture what, what society's reaction is towards certain media like the government can. Because the government has more experience in going through it. For example, like after the 13 May incident or after like so much of social unrest that caused the government harm, I think that's where they know better. So why should legitimacy, legitimacy of news be protected? Because it's in principle, right? Where individuals have, have right to know and publication news sites have to preserve this right. So what happens when licenses are removed, right? Like I think Iman's argument is so important about how when you have a free market journalism uh, uh, market, what's going to happen is that a lot of uh, companies are going to sensationalize news, right? They want more people to click on their link sites, which means like the diluted information is going to be bombarded with more things like um, hyper-exaggerated things, right? By that Journalism quality in Malaysia is going to decline. And in, in an era where Malaysia is literally up to 20, 22 places in the media press freedom around the whole world, I think it's super important to protect how journalists uh, or how media acts in our country, right? So, so because of that, we think that this proves that it isn't the licenses that causes media freedom to be suspended to begin with. We think it's the nature of government that's correctly, correctly pointed out by Oman. So even if you remove it, you can't really measure how, how the majority-minority dichotomy is going to be like. We think that there are still going to be racist things said, right? But at least now, if you're racist, you can't quote a Star News online article and say that, oh, my opinions are further validated. Secondly, why does it harm day-to-day -day people who are reading the news, right? Because it's now it's so much easier for people to get licenses or by the independent body itself, we think it's harder for people to gain accurate information because of the fact that like, there are more companies in general that there's just more articles, there's more news, so we pay the numbers there, right? Every time you go on Facebook, it's going to be so many articles, it's hard for you to filter out, it's hard for you to fact check these articles, hard for you to know which like, political party you should vote in the next election. And because of the very uh, idea of like, uh, the very idea of like the big data and the fact that you only see articles that tell you to your own views, which means it's so much harder for like private companies. The private companies only want to tell you to your views so they, they can get the clicks and likes on their articles, which means that you don't correctly get all the neutral news that the government wants to push to you. If you want in Malaysia that has regulated journalism, no thank you, or go inside opposition. Thank you very much, Rina, for that speech. For that speech. Uh, now, to wrap up the suspended portion of the government bench, we have the government whip. A few things about this person. His name is Danesh Ram Agarwal. He's 21 years old, currently pursuing an undergraduate degree in law at the University of Malaya. And when asked something interesting about you that you'd like the audience to know, he said he is an 8th grade violinist. Now, with that being said, I'd like to invite the government away. Here, here. I agree that the principles to a freedom of speech is not absolute. But ask yourself, do you need the permission of the government before you speak? 
do you need the permission of the government before you make a statement whenever you want to air your grievances? That is the right that we have protected since we built a constitution. And that is the right that said government is fighting for. Before I go into the two important questions of today's debate, I just want to get rid of all the non-contentious things that have been mentioned in this debate. Firstly, the Printing and Publications Act in 1984 does not adhere to online media because you don't need a publication license to produce content on the internet, right? So all these ideas about journalism online, about links on Facebook, does not hold water in this debate because the uh, Home Ministry has no jurisdiction to give them a license because they don't even get a license. And all these harms about yellow journalism, about fake news media, all of these things also don't exist because under both sides, they are not registered. You cannot take a license from an institution that isn't registered. And that's essentially what side government is fighting for. In our world, there is going to be the same number of companies, there is going to be the same number of entities and bodies. It's the difference maker is that your licenses is granted by an independent body as opposed to government. So all these ideas about fake news, yellow journalism will exist on both sides. How we counter against that is through acts by the Defamation Act by enshrining the constitution and civil suits not by the Printing and Publication Act, not by the government institutions by themselves, right? So getting that out of the way, what are the two important questions that we need to answer? The first, is government capable and is government good? I think the main thrust of opposition's case has been independent bodies cannot be trusted, independent uh, bodies are, are devout to corruption. The same reason is given to governments. I think this has been explained and analyzed well by government. But extending better is that the fact that government has so sit down, the fact that government has so many responsibilities, the fact that government has shown to be more abusive and corrupt in the past means that it is more likely for us to believe in independent institutions to grant these licenses better. I think this is the comparative that side the opposition must answer. Because it is not enough to simply state independent organizations are prone to corruption without first providing analysis and links as to why that is true and before providing why that comparative is better. We told you when Star was suspended in 1984 for seven months, not because it harmed the threatens of uh, our society, but because it produced content that was against the government. When the edge was suspended in 20, uh, 2012, it was suspended because of 300 articles in regards to IMDb. And Zayed Hamidi, the Home Minister, uh, threatened to suspend that news media because it had absolute discretion. So when they tell you that they only suspend based on standards, that standards doesn't exist in the PPPA. In the PPPA, it is complete with the discretion of the Home Minister. You are banking on the Home Minister being benevolent and being good. We are banking on the ideas of free speech and principles that we have upholded since we gained independence. Make that choice. I think it's obvious to say that the constitution is something I'd rather believe in than a Home Minister being good. But before that, sure. So all of your examples are from 30 to 50 years ago or from the previous government. Can you debate right now, the government that we have right now, why is it that there is still likelihood to abuse the power? Like I told you, the principles that we are protecting are absent or are independent from how good your government is. An independent body back then would have been better, an independent body now is better. That's 
Okay, forever and more so, that is the price that we are willing to defend. If BN comes into power next in the next election cycle, what are you going to do? Vote an entire government out just because the, they have abuse over uh, publication licenses. That didn't happen 60 years ago. We voted BN out because of the massive corruption that they had in all aspects of government. It's unlikely for me to accept that I will only vote for any government that is good in publication licenses. I think you need to prove why that is likely and why that is better. It's a comparative. That's what debate is about, right? Now going into the second argument about who maintains credit for news better. I think it is also important to understand the experience that what governments are capable and what independent authorities are. Giving charity to side opposition. The PPPA has been reformed. It is now where the Home Ministry, when they uh, choose to expedite or remove or suspend the publication licenses, companies have the opportunity to defend themselves. This happened in the Star and Malaysia PD two years ago. The problem with this is, the Star and Malaysia PD was only removed from suspension because of procedure, not because of substance. That means, if the Home Ministry continues to follow every single procedure to protect his or her discretion, that publication will still cease to exist. And I bring you back the court, the Supreme Court case that happened in 2014, Malaysia Guinea against the Home Minister. In that case, the judge argued that your ability to promote free press is just as important as your ability to have the freedom of expression, as protected in the Constitution in Article 10. This means one thing. It means that it's extremely valuable to us to be able to have publication licenses to be granted at any opportunity possible. Our side, even though we have a barrier, that barrier is given by an independent body, just like the election commission. They ask the question and they tell you that the government controls and may be corrupt in the police force, may be corrupt in the education system. Does that mean we replace them with independent bodies? I think that's outside or that's being completely disingenuous the case of opposition. The election committee, because we recognize their interests from the government to protect their power, we create an independent body. We recognize that the corruption and anti-corruption committee, if controlled by the government, may mean they have uh, promoted their own interests. Similarly, publication and media is extremely valuable to the Malaysian population. It shapes our values, it shapes our ideas, it shapes our thoughts. If the government has complete control to decide when and where I can take your license, when and where I can give your license, and when and where I can suspend your license, that means that the government may be prone to corruption more so than an international body. And that is a principle I will gladly defend as I continue standing on this uh, podium. All in all, side government pushed for a very simple idea. Your ability to express freely is something that Malaysia protects. That same right is extended to publication licenses and this is how we resolve that tension and this is how we solve that problem. Very proud to be on government. Thank you very much, Danish, for that speech. Now, to end this debate, we have the opposition with Mr. Azim Nazri. He is 25 years old. He is currently pursuing a degree in... I'm sorry, he, ha he graduated uh, with a degree in communications, majoring in public relations. Uh, he is actually currently our programs development manager at MIDP, uh, and he is an alumnus of University of Technology Mara. When asked, what is something interesting about you that you'd like the audience to know? He said, he will actively remind all of you that Qatar is pronounced as Qatar. 
Fun fact, even I just learned that. Alright, with that being said, I'd like to invite the opposition away. Here, here.
tools of oppression has, can, and will always exist. My right to own a knife to cook is my potential to stab someone with that knife does not mean that the government and for any of myself do not be able to own those sorts of things. What we have on their world is essentially the US, where they have an ability for people to fight against what they want. But no, they don't want that because they want Malaysia but just no government. But still, what they do not have is things like a proper media council group that already exists, a standardized, a standard, a standardized and codified code of ethics and conduct, a more empowered populace that's more able to take actions, things like hate speech laws that don't already exist in the country. And this all means that what they want to do is unlikely to succeed if it doesn't have the authority of the government. And even then, what they need to clarify is what are the values that their neutral bodies want to have. Because these neutral bodies, do they care about national security? Do they care about national protection? Can we speak about things like women's rights? We don't know because they never clarify any of this. We don't know if they can speak about issues like top security or classified information. It was an issue where the news agency is writing about what military secrets we got. How exactly can they speak of those things if it's fine for them to be able to discuss? I think there is some standard and some ability for the government to say that there is a reason and sometimes the government's interests are aligned with the needs and interests of the people. And thirdly, it's their issue is that the government is corrupt. I'll still take, the, I'll still take things out because of what Ram said. That they are, they already exist a clear and belief, a clear belief in Malaysians that some, perhaps the police is untrustworthy because they think that the police is corrupt, because they think that the police is a tool to oppress the people, and that you can pay enough coffee money for to not pay most of your fines. But do we remove them completely? No, we regulate them, we ensure there's no partiality, we ensure they have more control, but we do not just give them away to a random neutral body that exists just because we think that they might be most to be endangered. And that's what we're doing here. We are policing print, we are ensuring that these things can't be abused on our side. But secondly, because they say that we need the ability because UMNO might just gain, uh, win the next elections and things will go back. But they won't. They've seen what happens when you abuse the system. They've seen what happens, no, when you, get, when you oppress the people. And it's smart enough of them to realise that if you do that again, you will lose. That's what they're doing right now. They're criticising the government, the current Pakatan Harapan government, because of their perceived impartiality. They criticise the former Ratu Pakoya. They criticise the government of... Uh, they criticise multiple ministers because they think that these ministers are not exactly neutral. They criticise the abilities people in the current government to be fair because they can. And that means that they won't do that later because the moment they oppress the people or reverse the current policies, they are the next one to be taken down. And what we have shown last year was that all the media controls, all the attacks doesn't mean much if the people can vote you out. And that means that they have no reason to continue and reverse and backtrack on their actions. The conclusion of this debate is that the conclusion of this debate on opposition is simple. No freedom is absolute and there are limits inherent in an organized government that knows and best understands and carries the people's interests in mind. That the state's interests may not necessarily be the same interest as your neutral organization's body. That the state's interest is more aligned with the interests of your people. Under John Locke's social contract theory, we give only some rights for security, for liberty, and any discussions on rights is regarding where we draw the line. And on opposition, this is where we draw the line, with the government deciding who can have and is allowed to publish.
very much, Azim, for that speech. Now, I'd like to ask the speakers and the debaters to just stay put because we're going to have a conversation now. We're going to have, oh, sorry, we're going to have a conversation now and we'd like to engage with members of the audience. So, the way we're going to have this conversation is I'm going to open the floor to questions and you may direct said question to either, either side of the debate. So, let's start now. Are there any, is there any question on the floor right now? Anything regarding to arguments, anything regarding to rebuttals, anything whatsoever? Yes? Hi, I have a question for the government side. Um, opposition side in this debate argued that if the government is the party having the power to issue these licenses, should they become corrupt or unable to properly regulate these licenses, we can vote them out. One of the check and balances um, that you're proposing outside our government in this debate um, to act as a check and balance for these neutral parties. So if they abuse that power, what are the things that we can do to make sure that they don't or we replace this neutral body? What is it that you're proposing? Thank you. Um, what we propose is just like how we regulate the election committee, right? At any point in time, if there has been abuse by the committee, automatically the government fires them because they are given a mandate by the government and then we replace them with more better substitutes. I think that is a better check and balance than it is to have uh, governments. Or just like how we uh, nominate the Attorney General. He acts as a neutral body. The moment he goes a step out of line and people are unhappy, he is removed from his position. All right, thank you. Uh, is there any other question on the floor? All right. I have a question for government. What exactly is the differentiations between independent companies and the government? Because if government have job to get license, it means that government should set different departments to different cities, different companies to get the license. They also have different people and have whole different values. Um, maybe some is neutral, maybe some is conservative, some is liberal. But under comparative, if those independent companies, they also have the likelihood to be controlled by some giant companies or those boss, and they also have those corruption and some things. So what exactly is differentiation you propose for the So basically the difference is the independent parties act as a safety measure, safety guard, because governments can change and governments are easier to be lobbied than these independent parties. I think in most circumstances, like politicians are actively lobbied as well. So indirectly, they are the ones who are able to dictate what sort of news is being produced. Therefore, we think independent parties exist as a safety measure because as governments are even voted out, then what happens? If the new government is more conservative or more right-wing, then it's most probably going to be the worst side of the scenario. They want you to start blocking news. And we think the uncertainty of the future, like unless we have some heaven who's able to actively depict the future, we should always err on the side of caution. And that's why we think independent parties are more trusty, in which, in the sense in which they are less likely to change the ways they use certain news rather than governments. Thank you very much for that. Um, next question. Yes. Okay. 
My name is Lisa. I'm from UITM Dunkil, and my question goes to side opposition. As you said, before mentioned that accountability is really a need for a good government, right? So we have other acts such as official secrets and so forth that really restricts the freedom of speech. So how is under your paradigm can be sufficient to ensure the freedom of speech of the society is prevailed? Opposition? Uh, hi, so what we argued in section this debate was that there are times upon which we agree that the government is allowed in restricting freedom of speech and especially the cases of the OSA where it's regarding national security we think it's justified that the government uh, is controlling freedom of speech so freedom of speech is a right but it's never an absolute right so it's fair for the government to restrict those rights Alright, thank you very much Azim Next question We'd like to hear from you Okay? for side of opposition. So the government also wanted to talk about how the abuse of the power of government happens. So meaning that although your freedom of speech is not an absolute right, there is a right that can be taken away by government, but how do you then ensure that the abuse of rights of individuals on the ground, especially for all these corporations, uh, is something that won't happen? Opposition? Entirely uh, say that 100% uh, that these people will have their rights to speech because it's all up to the government in itself. So, for example, when like the end was in power, then no rights were restricted, and now there's the case, so there's more rights to speak up. But it's it's important for the government in itself to regulate uh, these laws is because the government is the best person to understand how society works, especially like what. Makes them go wild and like violent versus like what makes them calm, right? So in that sense, societal protection and societal harmony is a bigger, uh, it's a bigger benefit than sometimes people's right to say probably like racist remarks or to like go against the government and say things that would provoke uh, societal unrest. So we know that the chief of these bodies are 
political appointees like Ahmad Harun or different lawyer, which means they also serve at the pleasure of the current government. So with that in mind, how is that any different from having a government body at the uh, Good question. Uh, what we felt in government was that I think as long as the government directly gives you your paycheck under the government body uh, or under the government institution, it makes it very hard for you to be independent. So as much as you guys um, may feel like the chain of order is still the same, I think changing the legislative, uh, and just one word, from being under the government and being neutral makes a very big difference to how much authority you can give the independent party to act against the government or to even criticize the government. And I think that's the difference here. I, um, presumably, if you look at it in a sense where uh, these individuals are still cronies, we can't do much about it, let's be honest. right? But what we can do is that if you decided to stand up for your independent body, you would have more power and autonomy under the side of government to do just that as compared if you were under the government's purview of Right. Thank you very much, Daniel. And that concludes the Q&A session. Uh, one last thing before we end, I just want to get a feel of the room and engage with the room some more. We've already, I've already taken votes before the debate happens. Who is in favor of the government issuing that license and who is not in favor? So let's see whether the perception has changed. Who here thinks that the government should not be allowed to issue a printing and publication license? Please raise your hand. Who do not think that the government should be able to do so? Alright, and... Sorry. Who thinks that the government should not have the ability to issue a printing and publication license? Okay, terribly sorry for that. Okay. Who here thinks that the government should be issuing said license? Raise your hands. Oh, alright. So, good job, opposition. Alright, and that concludes the debate today. So, before we present tokens of appreciation to the debaters, I'd like to invite the debaters to please take their seats on the floor. Okay, not on the literal floor, but in the floor of the audience.
The role of the government is to prevent harm. This is to suggest you must prioritize the safety of your citizens over everything else. So if you notice, in the current stage, Pakatan Harapan wants to legislate and reform the pension fund that we currently have. The pension fund is very good for people that are benefiting of it. But for the next generation of people that are going to pay the debt for it, there is an inconsiderable harm placed on them. So that means, just because there is a benefit to something existing, that doesn't mean government should allow for it to happen. Similarly, when it comes to reporting of race, there are benefits to it. We know how people of different races interact with each other, we know what's happening in our country, but we need to ask ourselves if that benefit is worth it when it comes at this potential cost. Number one, when the media reports with regards to race, there are always certain quarters in our country that benefit of racialized types of conflicts. There are race-based parties that want to use race as a method to regain power in the federal government. I won't name them, you can draw that distinction for yourself. But secondly, when we do report on race, oftentimes there are already preconceived biases that we already have. When an Indian person is involved in an automotive accident, we think it's because potentially of alcoholism. There is no truth to the fact, but it is because we have these assumptions that people interact this way. So the point I'm making here is, knowing that this can happen, knowing that the mention of race is incredibly sensitive, knowing that people can potentially abuse it, it's negligent for the government at this particular juncture to allow for it to happen. But I think the second question we need to ask is, can we be better? And I'm not talking about the media, I'm talking about everyone here, myself and the audience. The reality is, we are incredibly irresponsible when it comes to discussions on race. How many of us have been on the star and have seen just some of the randomest, most racist comments that have no relation to the media, no relation to the news story, but that there it is a concept D4P. I don't know what it means. I don't know why people think it's funny, but it appears. Nobody really calls it out because there is a consistent like cost associated with it. You have to deal with the trolls, you have to deal with the racists. Nobody wants to do that. Because we're all self-interested, we just allow for these negative comments to continually fester. So the reality is, Malaysians cannot self-regulate their own discussions on race. Until that juncture, we shouldn't talk about race because it's quite clear that we are just incapable of handling those discussions. I'll be wouldn't specific media interest groups that discuss about issues that are not that popular die out in your world? Yeah, I think they will die out. I think it's a very good thing that they die out. Uh, here's why. Firstly, let's talk about the media. Because the media is not just a monolith. There is no one big media company. There is multiple versions of them, and they all have specific interests. So for instance, in the current age where Facebook, Twitter, and Google all exist, there are actually algorithms that pander to specifically what people want to talk about. So for the liberal person that's really woke about race, that understands structural oppression and historical injustice, the type of news you get tends to be one that is positive about race. But let's just acknowledge the majority of the population here in Malaysia. Not everyone is privileged enough to access this highly academic liberal literature, rather the way we see race is based on the discussions that we have with people around you. So for the boy that is born in a kampong that has no one else to talk to beyond people that are afraid of their race losing power, that's how they conceptualize race. That's the reason as to why on Twitter, immediately after Adib's death, 
the immediate accusation was not that the fire department was negligent, rather it was that there was a concentrated effort on behalf of Malaysian Indians to kill a fellow Malay brother. The reality is, even when we try to rectify these falsehoods, by the time a story is published, it's too late to rectify it because it has spread. It's been retweeted millions of times, thousands of people have seen it, and the damage is there to be seen. That's why even if you look at Haryan Metro, when they were at their peak running storylines like Upper Lami China Mao, they were still able to sustain themselves because there is a whole group of people that like that kind of headlines, but also like that they are racist views for being affirmed. So the point I'm trying to make here is this. The type of people that are hurt when it comes to race being reported are oftentimes minorities like yourself. I don't know if you're a minority, I definitely am. Uh, that we don't have much to defend ourselves with. So it's not so much about if there are benefits, if we can identify certain race quarters. All of that can happen. But I think you need to ask yourself if these statistics, knowing truths that we already know, are worth it if it comes at the potential cost of individuals being hurt. It's 628, So before I leave, um, race is something that's going to stay consistent throughout uh, our lives. Uh, whether or not the media discusses it well, I don't know. But I think the onus is on us to be slightly better about it. So for that reason, we shouldn't talk about race. Thank you. Thank you very much, Naveen, for that speech. I want to say a few things about our next speaker. His name is Joshua George Harabis. He is 19 years old, uh, and he's currently pursuing philosophy, politics, and economics at the University of Warwick, all the way in the United Kingdom. And when we asked him something interesting about you that you'd like the audience to know, he said, I heard that the yield curve is inverting. So if anyone is willing to give me a job or an internship, that would be really good for my parents. With that being said, I would like to invite the leader of opposition. Here, here. Because what he talked about was the role of the government to protect the most vulnerable. 
What is the alternative? And this is something you all need to understand. Is that the alternative is they only have the Twitter trolls propagating these sort of narratives about race, religion, and gender. On our side, we have the media. Even if you want to say they are less accountable, there's some accountability to hold the narratives to a court. On their side, you lose that, and you let the airwaves be filled, be filled by the very same people. Let's say it's called the racist or sexist vitriol that we see in the way in chat rooms today. If Nami wants to reduce that, you don't give them more airwaves to do that exact same thing. But more importantly, how do we improve media accountability? And this is the important bit of framing that you need to understand for this speech. That is the most popular news sources today in this country have much more ambiguous stances on issues. It's not like the radical differences between like Fox News and like the BBC spectrum. I think it's far harder to see where your Malaysian news sources stand on a specific issue. What is more likely is to take strategic stances. So sometimes there will be like racist uh, articles that come from their side. But I think it's more likely when uh, death happens, you're likely to say there's some uh, race involved, but you're not unsure what their stance is. How does it radically change from their side of the house? Two things. The first is that when you have a blank canvas, it's much more easier for you to fill in, for example, details that you will likely sway people subconsciously for you to have predisposed biases against those people. Why? Because now you're unlikely to show images of people. You're unlikely, for example, to have these sources that means that you can act effectively mitigate against people trying to be racist. Why is it better on our side of the house? Because we are outside the house, we have the ability for you to actually bet what is going on because the discussion about race is plain and bad. If someone is being racist, you know specifically whether they are being racist. There they hide behind some veiled curtain of attempt to try to hide behind their racism. What is the impact of this? Subconsciously, society is more likely to be in, uh, involved and more likely to be exposed to media sources that need specifically they have an incentive to sway people more to the right and left, what we see in other developed countries. We lose that ability for us to be critical thinkers and be the same positive news sources, the same positive news sources we have today. Before moving on, sure. So you are correct. There are trolls in the world of government that still exist. The difference is in your world, they have actual news stories to back up their beliefs and to justify the people. Why is that better? So, understand how these news stories are constructed isn't as radical as you like to talk about. The vast amount of news stories that involve race probably involve some sort of uh, some sort of encounter or some sort of altercation between two groups of people. On outside the house, when you actively publicize or publish about that story and race is involved, it's easy for you to say, oh, this specific uh, news source is racist, whereas on that side it's harder to see. We tell you the impact of this isn't in the short term, but it's in the long term when you are subconsciously infused by the same hidden messages that they would like to propagate on their side of the house. But more importantly, even if you don't believe anything I just said for the last four minutes, what is the second important piece of argumentation that I come up is about how we combat and correct prejudices. Because the reality of the situation is that we are still in a society that not only has biases, but only has structural barriers that face certain groups of people. How do we need, why do we need to talk about this in the media? If a certain group of people face a systemic oppression, like they're more likely to suffer poverty, they're more likely to be the victim of drug abuse cases. This is a, this is a case that can't just be talked about in parliament, but needs to be part of the wider social uh, discussion. Why? Because for you to get the change 
through translating through parliamentary laws or the discussion through parliament, people need to be galvanized by this situation. Why does this not happen? Because when you talk about poverty rates, it's 30% of Malaysians are, are, are poor. But this is a large fact that, for example, 60% of that uh, 30% are Indians. And that is the harm that only affects a certain minority of group of people. Now we want to play the minority card. I'll play it too. If, it, if it's the group of people that you want to defend, it shouldn't be masked by the fact that there are other groups of people that have a better quality of life, but you don't see the differences. We see the differences when the star reported that quotas exist in education that systemically harm people of a different race that are not Malay, for example. This is how we combat this. We have that general discussion in the public gets involved. What are the discussions that are unlikely going to be reported on? Reported on things that also affect women about sexual sexual harassment, but cases about rape. Because these are specific things that involve the power dynamics between gender as well. What is the impact of this? Do dilute any progressive change or forward traction for the people that you're supposed to be fighting for? Why is this harmful? We tell you three things. The first is that a lack of discussion means that in society's general perception of the issue is an issue that is solved and something that we shouldn't fight further. Second, we tell you that for specific groups of people, they are more likely than not going to be continuously berated by the media. Under my first argument where the media is less likely to have empathy for them because race is no longer consideration consideration in the calculus of these media houses. And the third thing which we say is that the media has no incentive to, for example, care about these individual stakeholders in things like producing these sort of reports like on quotas and education and healthcare. These are long-term impacts, not just the murder cases that the previous speaker before me wanted to talk about. It impacts every day of our lives when we want to have general discussions about things that really are intertwined in the fabric of our country. It's said in America and it's said in Malaysia as well. Race and religion and gender are issues that are being infused from the day our country was formed. For you to just sideline that and ignore that that isn't the reality means that people that are subjugated by that reality never get a course of action to speak out and improve the quality of their lives. For every bad media reporter, you have a one that's trying to fight for a cause that they believe in. Let's give them that voice and let's not silence the people that are going to help our country grow at large. Thank you very much, Joshua, for that speech. Now, responding to the Leader of Opposition, we have Ms. Sarah Mohd Shafi. She's 19 years old, currently pursuing her AE levels at the German Malaysian Institute. And when we asked something interesting about her that she'd like to share, she said, Growing up, I wanted to be a rock star, but that's pretty impossible. Then I discovered math and physics, which, ha which actually happens to be just as fun. I have now come to terms that I'll be happy even if I'm not a rock star. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to invite the Deputy Prime Minister. Here, here.
committing a certain crime or doing something, like I don't think that link necessarily exists. And that is what doesn't exist outside of opposition. We think the world is already divisive enough, but it is time that we stop looking past our differences and looking at all our problems as a cohesive whole. Malaysia Baru was supposed to be one where we believe in the race of Malaysia and not of the race of the Malays, Chinese or Indians. It is time that we go beyond that and we treat individuals as they are and not as a representative of what their race is. In my speech, I'm going to talk to you about two things. The first, as to how news affects people, and second, why it's extremely pernicious for you to punish individuals or punish communities upon the acts of individuals in which they never had any consent to or they never had any ability to choose from. But before that, a couple of responses. The first thing that opposition wanted to tell you was that, guys, discussions are better. We think discussions are not that great on their side of the house. Have you seen that? Just started. The first thing to say is, these discussions are oftentimes skewed because at the point in which most of your news outlets are paid by a lot of rich people, they're less likely going to want to know of what the things that they did are wrong. That's why a lot of times, the news that you see will tend towards the majority and not necessarily talk about what the minority's problems are. Therefore, what's the competitive that we provide? We think a world in which you do not talk about the majority but you talk about specific problems without even telling individuals that this is a minority's problem but this is our problem masks the fact that there exist divisive natures within our world but exist to form a more cohesive and a more wholesome news and more wholesome report. Let me see. But secondly, we think that these biases that we naturally have within CSGO quo are a product of years and years of news outlets telling us that the Chinese have So initially, there's no hiding behind anything. 
because we aren't even talking about race. We don't think there is a natural correlation between a certain race and the act of crime that they make. So explain it more now. What is the principle that we believe in? Firstly, there is literally no correlation between your identity and the things that you do. You cannot tell me that this Muslim individual committed an act of treason because he was Muslim. There is literally no correlation and no link towards that. The way in which you specify this identity means that other individuals who are Muslim, they were never able to make a consensus on what the Muslim identity was. But what happens now is, individuals will now stereotype Muslims as being terrorists, will now stereotype like Indians or Chinese as being less good or less of a, a, less of a good race as other races. The very idea that individuals within that community had no ability to consent and no ability to come to a consensus on what their community necessarily brings about means that when you make one individual the staple and representative of what that community is, you directly go against the other individuals on the ground and harm them even more. Because the stereotypes that that individual made isn't only applied to them, but applied towards the whole community who never had a choice and who never had the ability to correct these wrongs. Therefore, the state must do something to go against that. The fact that individuals are naturally harmed because of things that they never do, we think this is a world that we don't like. Second argument, how news naturally affects people. Let's say, in the best case scenario, there is good news that a certain individual from community, S, from community X does something good. Maybe our opposition will tell us that, yeah, it brings about visuality. But let me tell you why it's actually bad for them when you talk about race. The first thing is, the way in which we will now view community X is that we will increase pressure upon them. We will tell them that maybe you are able to be about be great, then we should only put you up to the level which is equal towards other individuals. This is bad because oftentimes success stories of let's say individuals who are initially poor and now they become rich are very rare and come few in, in and between. What this means is when you put all poor people within that standard, you literally make it that much harder for those individuals within that background. But secondly, why even good news would harm these individuals is because it increases complacency. When you only have a valid reason that when you are from a certain community and you can still succeed, what this means is more likely the government or more likely other bodies are going to decrease affirmative action or decrease quotas towards these communities because they already told you, like, you already have someone that succeeded. So these are literal acts of news outlets which will literally harm these individuals and we cannot have that. In a world where it is fair, we need to view individuals as they are and not simply part of the community that they were. So how does this naturally change the way people think? We think normalization happens within Cinesco, even the bad stereotypes. Like literally, everyone knows the Florida man and me when they do something whack or when they do some weird ass crime. So what this means is, sorry for my language, so what this means is literally, people just like to normalize even the weirdest things or just like to normalize anything that they are able to normalize. So in conclusion, guys, it's time for us to stop, uh, it's time for us to look past the things that cannot, we cannot change and actually look towards the things that we can. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah, for that speech. Now, the next person speaking, her name is Umay Marshta Binti Muhammad Azhar. She is 20 years old, currently pursuing an undergrad in law at the International Islamic University of Malaysia. And when asked, something interesting about you that you'd like the audience to know, she said, I'm very interested in public policy nowadays. With that being said, I'd like to invite the Deputy Leader of Opposition. You're here.
media that targets or discusses about race, religion, etc., you have facts to disprove the wrong issues that are currently discussed within status quo. I think if you realize, a lot of the issues of minorities are usually not discussed because these are distant issues from society. A lot of people cannot relate to this. For example, when we're talking about indigenous communities who are rallying against the corporations who are taking their land, it is more likely to be perceived as from an average reasonable person. This is just taking away your property. It's for development. But for these very individuals, they deserve a loud voice on media and they wouldn't necessarily be able to get that. I'll take you at five. I think that it's necessarily important because a lot of issues, for example, Muslim extremism that happens in Malaysia with a lot of Muslim boys joining ISIS or the sodomy that would exist towards like these sensitive issues that happen in Malaysia, I think that all of these things would be able to come to light at that point in time where you have media reporting on these specific issues. Thirdly, how do you then keep media outlets accountable? Other than competition, I think that a lot of the instances we would be able to target which media institutions are racist and which media institutions are not. So for example, if you're looking at America, when we're looking at Fox News, it is obviously that a lot of the statements coming from Fox News are inflammatory and are against the you know, public morality that a lot of individuals necessarily talk about. But at the point in time where we can identify them, we can create a change. But before I move on, um, any so the entire case of politics is that we will have facts that prove that racism is a thing. Given that media organizations are profit incentivized and they have to pander to majorities, uh, why would they just report the inverse of these facts to show what people want to see rather than their objective? Because of the global networks that exist, one main form of news that says that this is the correct form of interpretation isn't going to dominate the discussion necessarily. So if you have multiple media outlets, one like wanting to have an incentive to check one another, you will be able to find out what is the truth and individuals get to decide, right? But like moving on to something more important, which is the fact that I think it's status quo. When you have and are able to identify media institutions that funnel in racist, uh, racist comments, etc., you would be able to know who actually funds these, uh, which political parties fund these particular media institutions, or who are they hiring in order to have these inflammatory statements within status quo, what are the kind of specific demographics of individuals that they target, and I think that the average reasonable person would either distance away from that particular discussion and realize that this isn't the best media for them, or individuals who already buy into Fox News, etc., are more likely to just stay there. I think that what's important in this debate are the people who are average and reasonable and decide that inflammatory racist statements aren't the way to go about for the progression of society. And if you continuously feel like the harm is going to exacerbate, you will lose out on that audience that becomes a political rallying point in the empowerment of those minorities that, that need us in status For all those reasons, go inside opposition. Thank you very much, Umay, for your speech. And continuing off, we have the government whip, and that person is Mr. Tariq Makhta. He is 33 years old, and a of University Technology Mara in law. And when asked something interesting about him that he'd like the audience to know, he said, I'm currently learning Korean, because one never stops learning. With that being said, I would like to invite the government whip. Here, here. Uh, sir, how old again? 
Ladies and gentlemen, the side of opposition here are the kind of, have a very elitist way of looking at things. We're very simple people here from side government. We speak to the common people. We're not going to talk about active discourse around the liberalization of race. I'll talk very simply, right? I'll cover three main groups that this debate deals with. One, the media. Two, government and policy discussions. Three, society. But before I move on to the discussion of those three groups, let's just talk about something that's very clear about how debating works. Do we have, do we have to, in order for us to win this debate, do we have to show that our policy would eliminate Islamophobia and prejudices? No, we don't. No policy is perfect. But we that we should enact this policy if we can reduce those biases or at least not exacerbate existing prejudices. The problem with opposition is that they acknowledge that these prejudices exist, but at no point did they tell us how the media would be able to handle it or show that there is that, that at the worst case they would be able to limit the kind of harms that the kind of media uh, pandering to the to those prejudices would necessarily cause. So that, that being said, let's move on to the first one. And I think that leads to the first issue I want to talk about, which is the media. We think that when it comes to news reporting, as much as you want to be objective, there is always a bias in what you report, in terms of what facts you include, or what facts you exclude. Right? And when you talk about things like race, religion, and gender, opposition wants you to believe that after you read an article where these identifies are put forward, people can have a, then a rational discussion of those issues. As my first speaker, Naveen, pointed out, when you talk about issues like the Temple Riot, people did not have a rational discussion of what happened. And there's a reason for that, because race, religion, and gender are very intrinsic to our identity. And when people have discussions or critique it, people, uh, you know, criticize it, people feel attacked. And therefore, they're less likely to want to listen rationally or to have some kind of moderate discussion with you on those very issues. Right? So I think that, I mean, I'll talk about that later in terms of policy discussions. But I think the first thing we have to identify is they cannot get, opposition cannot get away with this idea that media reporting, including those identifiers, will lead to a good discussion. The second problem that, that the media has is the real question that we ask here. Can the media self-regulate? And that's why the question coming from Prime Minister was very important here. When you talk about trends today, when there's a decreasing number of people who read, uh, who read or click on media, the media today have a very great tendency towards pandering to the, to, the, to the average person. We agree that people have these prejudices and biases, and, so, and the media knows that too. So the best way for them to get the clicks that you want 
is to, ha is to have headlines that tackle those very issues that would exacerbate those same things. Because that's what gets people angry, that's what gets people to comment on those pages, that's what gets the clicks that they very much want. And we think that the kind of pandering that they would have is very detrimental to the kind of society that we want at the end of the day. What did this what did speaker before me tell you? She said, well, this affects specific issue reporting. We don't think so. Like, an example I'll, I'll put forward is that when you talk about reporting of sexual assault, some, what, what you see is that there's an under-report, there's a, there's a huge reporting of sexual assault on females, but a huge under-reporting of sexual assaults on males. Now that leads to the problem that males feel ashamed of coming forward. Now we think that generally speaking, you can avoid that entirely by reporting the problem of sexual assault as a whole, and therefore make it, you know, at least push for policies against sexual assault or sexual harassment, rather than making it a gender issue, making it more of a social or societal broad issue as a whole. So in terms of the first issue of whether the media will be better off. In terms of this, we say they will be better off because following the Swedish and German model, the kinds of reporting you would have would still put forward the same kind of information that you have, just with less identifiers that will lead to the biases they talk about. Second group that we want to talk about. There were two things that, uh, there was one thing that my partners have talked about firstly. The, the role of the government to protect society by minimizing or preventing harm. He brought through the German and Swedish model of not having identifiers in terms of reporting, but I would extend that as well. When you talk about like government role, government preventing the media from reporting on things that could be harmful, that's why we have like uh, media blackouts on reporting on things like state secrets. Because we acknowledge that there is such a thing as too much information, or information that can be damaging to the public to, 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 uh, to be able to digest as a whole. So if you agree that the government can limit the, the media's ability to report something when it's damaging to society, then you must follow through with this policy. The second problem, the second issue that we have is if there is indeed a policy that is related to those groups that you talk about, gender, religion, or race, we think that those discussions are best done behind closed doors among experts who are able to soberly discuss these issues. The problem there is when you have these media reporting on these issues, you have social media wars, you have uh, you know arguments all the time, and there's no way for you to have a good public conversation on that very issue. In fact, what you're more likely to have is public pressure of a very fickle kind, of a very emotional kind of government to pass certain laws or enact policies that target a particular group and maybe rush as a whole. Yes. The question all of you need to ask is, on a conversation of race, religion, gender, do you want your only source to be from your social media warriors or from a newspapers that have higher standards? Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't always trust our media organizations. And I think the way that we live today is when we start trusting the media to, well, when, when they seem to have a very inordinate, a very high trust in media. We don't think that's necessarily true. In fact, we think what's more likely is, if you don't report on these details, people are more likely to want to find out those details on their own, which I think is better for the kind of skepticism that you have towards these media organizations, rather than accepting whatever they report to be the absolute truth. So secondly, we've shown to you why the government can better pass policies when they have discussions behind closed doors. The same kind of discussions that you want to have, right? Lastly, is this idea of society in terms of prejudices and biases. We not only talked about the worst labels, right? This is something that my second speaker talked about, that the speaker before me didn't want to talk about, right? She, she, she also showed you the problem of having positive labels. The kind of stereotypes that pressure people to conform to those kind of ideals and, and, and then make it so it's hard for them to break out. We think there is such a thing that even positive stereotypes can be harmful. What we would rather have is to have issues 
and individuals judged on their merits and not on the identifiers that you place upon them. That only happens, that kind of discussion only happens in the society when you don't allow the media to perpetuate or at least exacerbate, uh, to, to make this discussion even worse. As the speaker before me also said, there is no correlation between identifiers and behaviors. When you talk about like Muslim identities or even this idea of what a Muslim identity really is. When you when, when the first speaker of opposition talked about the poverty rate and how like 30% like of the people who are living, living below the poverty line are Indian, we think that's a problem with society as a whole in terms of dealing with poverty and we shouldn't make poverty a racialized issue. The problem in Malaysia is that we often try to segment, segment issues into you know, the, the identifiers that are part of whether you're male, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Malay. And we think we, start to, we have to start acknowledging that the problems we face today are a society-wide issue. And for those reasons, we're really proud to propose. Thank you very much, Tariq, for that speech. And to end today's debate, um, just a few things about the opposition whip. Her name is Mika Teleteo. She's 21 years old. She just graduated with a bachelor's degree in management and majored with major in legal management from the Ateneo de Manila University. And when asked something interesting about herself that she'd like to share, she said she's a lover of cute animal stickers, caramel macchiatos, and Jollibee. With that being said, to end the debate, I invite the opposition whip. Here, here. Back in the 90s and early 2000s, news narratives were controlled by three major companies, RTM, TV3, and TV7. Lo and behold, these companies were either government-owned or government-leaning. There, there were huge issues of bias against particular races, huge issues of not reporting on government issues. But today, we see many different news companies. We see Malaysia TV, Astrawani, The Star, and many other international sources of news media. What all of this shows is, it's true, the world today isn't perfect. We have a lot to learn, we have a lot to improve, but we are constantly moving forward. The first question we have to ask is, are we truly doomed? Are we too racist, too stubborn, too bigoted to have any conversation about race, religion, or gender at all? And what I'll tell you right now is, the global trends point to the exact opposite. There are four reasons why we are ready to have these conversations. First, the fact that globalization is happening means that we are constantly tearing down borders and we are engaging and understanding with people who used to be millions of miles away from us. The second thing is, related to globalization, there are huge rates of intermarriage, which means most households today are actually of mixed origin and are of mixed religions, mixed races, mixed ethnicities, and we are constantly understanding people who used to be very far from us. Third, the digital revolution that has allowed us increased accessibility of education and allowed us to learn about things where we previously didn't have access to them because they were just too expensive for us to reach. And fourth, the burgeoning middle class that has allowed even the poor to get access to education. The government today has more money for welfare and education than it did 20, 30, 50 years ago, ladies and gentlemen. Which just goes to show the world is improving, we are learning more, and we can talk about these things. We think the problem on their side of the house 
They have a very negative view of the world. But if you look at global trends and even trends in Malaysia, there are many things that have improved. Globally, you see gay marriage being legalized in all 50 states of the U.S. You see it being legalized in Taiwan. In Malaysia, you see many more progressive politicians questioning the movie picture laws, which just goes to show that things are improving, ladies and gentlemen, and we are ready to have these conversations. Now, what is the difference between our side and their side? We think the push for greater liberalization and greater accessibility of information happen because the media is able to talk about these things and inform people that, ah, uh, there is a problem with our current welfare laws and it's only benefiting a particular race. Or, there is a problem with sexual harassment and it's deeply, deeply harming our gender minorities. We think if you don't allow these conversations to be accessible, if you don't allow them to be on media, then we are never able to continue this constant push towards liberalization. My first speaker explained the exclusive benefits of media. He said that media is one, accessible in the way that you can access it even without paying money. But second, it's accessible in a way that you don't have to have a PhD or a master's to be able to understand what it says. You can watch a video and you don't even have to speak English to know that it's a problem. But on their side, there is no way to be able to combat any of these biases. Second question, are all media houses true people? The first thing I want to point out is exactly what the forum earlier said, which is many, many journalists go into journalism knowing that you're not going to get a lot of money out of it. A lot of people go into it as vocation. And it's really strange to us that in a debate or in a, in a forum about media, they seem to accuse the media of being all bad guys, ladies and gentlemen, which is totally wrong. We think the media is full of honest, good faith people that try very hard to release a lot of information to the public when previously a lot of these information weren't accessible. First, we want to say that there's a lot of prohibitions that regulate instances where people are irresponsible. You have very strong libel and slander laws that actually destroy reputations that a lot of journalists are terrified of. Therefore, they're not going to release fake information. Second, you also have very strong fake news laws that are now being extended to the online sphere which means even if you post a status or a tweet online, you can be very well held accessible for anything you post and stuff like that. The second thing I want to point out is they say, well, social media is a better source. No, we don't think so. As pointed out in the POI by my teammate, it's significantly worse because social media doesn't have the same regulations that journalists do have. Journalists, literally, this is their livelihood. Everything is on the line if they post anything fake. But for somebody as just like a passive observer online, they don't have the same fears. So we think it's significantly better for people to get information on race, gender, religion from trusted and regulated sources versus unregulated sources online. But the last and most important question, how then do we help minorities? And I'm going to talk about this in two ways. First, negative news and second, positive news. Sure. If it is true that everyone is as liberal as you say, why do we still need all these labels? Why can't we just help everyone as liberal as we are? Because you need the stories to come out. People need to know that sexual harassment is worse for gender minorities, that poverty is a race issue, that there is a huge terrorism issue that's linked to religion. And if people don't know that it's related to all of these things, then we're never going to be able to create proper solutions to fix these problems, which is exactly the third question. First, the reason why we need to know about the labels 
is because it allows us to learn targeted solutions. For example, if there's an issue of land grabbing about indigenous communities and the government proposes just moving them away, that's a terrible solution because people wouldn't have known that the important issue there was actually about ancestral domain. People wouldn't have known to protect the land instead of to relocate them. There are specific nuances to very, very key and important issues that we will never be able to solve if we don't look at the racial, religious, ethnic links with these issues. But the second, about challenging stereotypes, which related to positive perceptions. Imagine a patriarchal world where nobody celebrates the achievements of women. Nobody knows that transgender individuals are actually harmed. Nobody knows that there are individuals like, let's say, African Americans who graduate college and who get PhDs later on. The only way for us to positively challenge stereotypes is if we release stories of achievements about people who previously were invisible. We think in their world, all of the members of minorities will continue to stay in the shadows. It is only our side that allows them to be pushed forward. Thanks. Thank you very much to all those speakers for a fantastic debate, everyone. Let's give them another round of applause. All right, considering that this weekend is all about conversations, I would like to invite the six speakers to just stay put at their seats. And I would like to ask the audience for questions, things that they would like to inquire about, arguments, rebuttals, or whatever that was discussed just now with all the debaters at the front. So let's start. Is there anyone in the audience who would like to ask a question? Yes, first question. Um, my question is directed to site government in this debate, but clearly to... You know what, anyone can answer. So, for specific issues that site opposition has brought up in the debate, like sexual harassment, do you think the issue can be addressed as effectively if the gender element or the gender analysis um, is not brought forward um, like what was suggested in government whip. Thank you. Government? Um, so I think, uh, so as I spoke about earlier, I think that you, you can have these discussions, but I think if you talk about the policy level for governments, I think like governments have access to that data without needing to, the media to report on them. So in terms of what you know, your question means is I think we can have solutions to deal with it without the, reporting, without the media having to report on those identifiers. So we can deal with sexual harassment as a whole. The government would have probably a better idea of what, uh, would probably be able to have discussions with experts on how to better deal with it without having to have the public involved. Right, thank you very much, Tariq. So, next question. Does anyone have a question they'd like to ask? Yes, sir. I have a question for the government side. If this is the beginning of a gender race, where does it end? Because tomorrow it would be the government would say we don't cover crime, we don't cover you know, X, Y, Z. So then you, know, you are limiting the role of press by just adding more and more factors to it. So eventually there will be no news because everything would get covered as having an impact on uh, society. Thank you, government. So I think it literally just stops at age. Uh, uh, it just stops at the things in which you are able to identify yourself. So things that you cannot change. Uh, probably we won't show individuals' pictures. 
we won't tell them what their age is, uh, we won't tell them what race they are, what race they are, what religion they are. Because like these are innate things which are personal to you and oftentimes it doesn't even affect what you're doing. So even if we say like there are extremists in those things, we don't necessarily think that when you report about it being a Muslim thing, it does justice to other Muslims. So we need to go beyond on how this individual acts and think about the whole community as well. But we think that often it just stops to things that you, you can't you cannot change. The race that you have, the religion that you are in, your age, your appearance, those are things in which you do not report. But then the fact that an individual committed a crime against another individual and how that crime is committed, the procedures in which you bring that individual to court, those are things in which would Alright, thank you very much, government team. Uh, next question, I believe you have a question. Um, do you think uh, government has a role in um, regulating what people can say or media can say? Uh, since uh, with, I think, an exchange of ideas like this debate is already enough to uh, self-regulate what is right and wrong. So, do you think it's necessary to have government as a bit of yeah. Do you think for both sides, either side? Maybe someone from opposition. Uh, from the opposition side, we think that there sh the government shouldn't necessarily intervene with things like free media because I feel like when it comes to governments that are obviously linked with political parties, etc. Sometimes they have their own interests in what they want to pursue. If they're given an ability to regulate, for example, with things like the Anti-Fake News Act, if it comes to a political issue, there might be an ability for governments to, for example, not discuss those political issues or deem them as sensitive and then clamp down on media institutions that want to report on those kind of things. So if they're given, uh, if the media institutions are given freedom, I think at that point in time, we'll be able to have better dissemination of news. People should be able to decide for themselves what they want to believe in, in contrast to a government that feeds you information on what you should believe in. Thank you. Government? So, um, I think that, as Naveen said, right, when sometimes when you report something and there is, it can set off some uh, a chain of events that are quite uncontrollable. And, I mean, I personally believe myself in free media, but I think there is a saying in, in Malay that is quite applicable, and I, I mean, paraphrase it in, in English, it's like, uh, the news can be rolled backwards, but not words. Hello? Alright, thank you very much, government team. Uh, we have a question here just now, right? Yeah, uh, let's start with you first. Hello, uh, so this is for all. Um, talking about media, and if you think about it, it's technically on a scale where different corporations are either biased in terms of conservatism or are they on the left wing right. So companies like Fox News or Breitbart or conservative media outlets who most um, oftentimes speak out against racism, they speak against a lot of these things, so what are your check and balances? Because if you think about it, although regulation happens, however, still there are going to be outlets who are still going to clamp down on these minorities. Hi. Okay. So I think when it comes to large 
church and conservative media houses. Um, the problem with them isn't just the news they give out, right? The problem is also who they fund, who they're associated with, and all of these issues that are, you know, behind public doors. And in, able, in order to stop or to know that these things are happening, you need to know what their biases are. So if they're producing conservative or, you know, racist media, then you know that they are racist um, platforms. Therefore, it's easier to create solutions to stop the more subconscious problems that are actually more dangerous than the news they uh, release. But if you're just stopping at stopping them from releasing news, then you lose the markers to know that they are truly dangerous in the more subconscious ways. So I think um, targeting one is the greater priority than stopping the uh, news that they give out. Thank you very much, opposition. Next question. Uh, to opposition yet again. So there, the opposition stated earlier, right, there is correlation between gender, religion, and race. But I'm all the contentions given from opposition is just showing positive discrimination. How about negative discrimination? Opposition?
So that's my question to both sides. I think we can start with the first question of the government team. Okay, maybe opposition can go first with your question. Right, so I think that there are um, three ways to prevent that. So first would be government regulation to prevent the worst forms of news twisting. So if it's obviously fake and outlandish claim, then there's government regulation to prevent those things. Second, I think media houses are constantly telling each other out. I think what was mentioned in the forum earlier was also that um, the journalist community is very small in the way that a lot of them know each other, they know what somebody's doing, they know what story this person's reporting on. Um, and many of them are people who believe in good faith, um, in like journalism with integrity, which means there's a strong um, there's a strong push to maintain the integrity of the um, of the profession. So they constantly call each other out to prevent um, any painting um, of journalism. And the last I think is I think a lot of the reasons why um, media houses tend to um, resort to, let's say, um, sensationalizing media, creating clickbaits, is because profit becomes a problem. Um, but I think that, especially for um, the digital media houses, they've been innovating ways to try to generate profit, um, and innovating ways also to reduce costs um, in certain areas so they don't have to spend so much and resort to click baby, um, all those shenanigans. So one way is to try um, more word of mouth advertising versus like more paid affiliate advertising previously. Or a lot of them now, is, instead of shift, instead of like print media, a lot of them has shifted to digital media so the costs in like printing or factories are significantly less. Um, and those contribute again to less profit motivation and less of a hunger to get in more money. Thank you very much, Mika. Um, government team, your question? So, if I'm not mistaken, I think the question is how do we ensure that we are objective without the words Hello? Is that okay? Yeah, so we are not mistaken, it's about how we can ensure that we are objective and I don't think we can assert that we will be completely objective. Obviously, I think in both worlds, there will be sexist men occupying newsrooms, and that's very unfortunate. But I think we need to ask ourselves about the outcome of where these men are less damaging. Uh, because I think in a world where you report on race and gender specifically, there is a sexist man writing about rape and stories specifically related to rape. Uh, actually, just this morning, the New York Times, uh, one of the biggest publishers, the most supposed liberal, wrote a, like, a ghastly piece about one of uh, Brett Kavanaugh's Survivor, something about it was just a fun bit of information and a fun little event. So I recognize we can have the discussions and recognize specific bits of sexual assault and moral opposition. Uh, but if you look at it in reality, these men exist in our world too. The difference is we don't give them the capacity to talk on an issue they don't know anything about first. I think that's why it's very important. Alright, thank you very much. Uh, and that concludes the QA session with the debaters. So so first of all, let's give them another round of applause for your great, great engagement. It's a good conversation we have this weekend. And before we present the token of appreciation and before I have to sit down with the audience members, I just want to re-engage with the audience on how what they think the opinion 
should be about this topic. So, this on a rough gauge. So, who here thinks that media practitioners should reference gender, religion, and any other identities when they're reporting? Raise your hands. Hiya. Alright. Okay, who thinks that they shouldn't reference? Like, no identity markers whatsoever. They seem to be about the same, at least leaning slightly towards referencing. Uh, either way, thank you so much. Um, good job to the debaters as well. Uh, I'd like to invite the debaters to please sit down with the audience before we present tokens of appreciations. Introverted, that's all the more reasons to 
you know, catch up and learn the skills of as you go along. So we kind of knowledge evolution as part of that advocacy program that we do on an annual basis and the aim is to bring debating out to the public. Because if you know a little bit about the debating community, you will know that we're quite closed. Closed, like shy, I don't know. So the kind of things we do over the weekends usually is like quiz night or board game nights with each other. We don't like interact with the public so much. But this is one of the very rare opportunities that debaters in Malaysia have to actually interact with the public and showcase the amazing debaters that we have with us right now. And I'm also very, very glad to tell you that the debates that you will watch later on will feature some of the best debaters, not just in Malaysia, but also in Asia. We have the best speaker in Asia right now. We will be debating that uh, debate later on, and I hope you will enjoy the speeches um, as well. And before I end my speech, I just have to thank Institute of Journalists Malaysia for all the support and all the help, and in particular Chuck, because IOJ and Chuck is not just our partner that advises on things, but Chuck is also our emotional support system. So very, very thankful for all the times that Chuck answered our question when we can't quite figure out what to do with like certain things. So um, I'm just going to introduce you to the team members in case some of you want to talk to us later on. So here we have Izzat. Izzat is our business and development manager, business and operations manager. Uh, and that's Visha over there. At the back we have Wesley and somewhere is Azim. Okay. Um, if you have questions, you can approach us later on. I don't want to waste any more time. Thank you so, so much for being here. I'm really, really grateful to see all of you guys here. And let's start with the forum. And I hope you stay until the debate, okay? Don't, don't go back. So we'll have the forum first, and then keynote speech, and then debate. So I hope you stay throughout the entire thing because it will be interesting. Okay, thanks. All right, we'll now be proceeding with the forum. For your information, the forum, which is on who is killing Malaysian media, uh, it will be moderated by the chairman of the Institute of Journalists Malaysia, Mr. Chak On Lau. And the panelists will be the following. We have the general manager of Karangkraft, Mr. Ahmad Nazri. We have an editor of Astro Awani, Ms. Melissa Idris. We have the senior editor of The Star Online, A. Asuhan. And lastly, we have the editor-in-chief of Malaysia TV, Mr. Stephen Gunn. And with that being said, I would like to formally invite the panelists as well as the moderator to please take their seat at the front so that we can begin. Alright, and I'll now pass the floor to our moderator, Chuck. Thanks everybody. How's everybody doing? Good? Alright, good to hear. Alright, um, so we're going to keep this uh, panel casual and lively. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, one of the things that I want to start off with before asking any of our panelists questions is um, out of everybody here, how many people from the media? Oh, okay, not bad, quite a few. Now, the second question, how many people here know that media in general is in trouble? Oh, wow. Why are we even here? We're going already. I think that's <laughs> okay, so with that, now, now, now I kind of know what the floor is like. Uh, let me just uh, start off with our panelists with a question that I really wanted before we got on stage. Uh, I want you guys to say how many years you've been in the media, and then we'll start with the one who's been in the media the longest. Okay? Asuhan, how many, how many years? So ages, 
How many years? I'm the oldest here. But how many years are you here? How many years are you here? Okay, except for six years, for two years in India, about 30 years now. Thir 30 years? Wow. Okay, Stephen? 25. 25, Melissa? About 15. And Andre? 25. 25, okay, so you and Stephen are tied. Okay, so basically what we're going to do is uh, very quickly bring you through the 30 years you've been in India. So everyone kind of gets a background of where you've been before. Oh, okay. Well, I started uh, my career in journalism working for the tech pull-up in the Star. Uh, and in fact, the Star Online is a special project within Intech, which is the tech pull-up. So I spent about 18 years there. And then, uh, at one stage, I left journalism and joined Microsoft for a couple of years in VR. Missed journalism uh, and went back because, you know, it's a big hassle being able to pay your bills on time. All I decided to go back to do journalism and start studying. And uh, after uh, a few, couple of other tech journalists and I, including Karan Jackson from The Edge, we co-founded this uh, tech news portal called Digital News Asia, which is still operating. But in 2016, it sounds like some people to come back to the start because we are undergoing like, so many other industries, digital transformation industry, and we want to meet out with that. So. Right, cool. Uh, and Stephen, let me go back to I started off uh, as a freelance journalist when I was based in Hong Kong. Uh, and that's because I want to travel around, so I was more or less a backpack journalist. Uh, I managed to really uh, 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 visit quite a lot of countries in Asia. While you know, the, the earning my keep as a journalist, uh, writing for all sorts of magazines and newspapers and all that. After four years, I got tired and decided to come back to Malaysia, join the Sun uh, mm. as uh, a special editor, mostly looking after industrial journalism. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, that after a couple of years, uh, you know, facing quite a, quite quite a number of you know quite a lot of censorship. Uh, I decided that uh, to go back overseas. Uh, I went to Thailand, worked there as an editorial writer for uh, the nation, which is an English language newspaper, and it was just shut down. <laughs> so uh, not not very you know the good news there. Yeah. And I came back uh, again uh, in 1999, seminar year. Uh, Reformasi uh, demonstration was happening here in Malaysia. In fact, you know that. Um, uh, we, I still remember that Hayes was around, you know, still around today. Oh, and Mahathir was around then. You know, so so some, things don't, some things don't change, really. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, set up Malaysia TV. Uh, so that's been, uh, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Okay, that's it, your turn. Okay, despite train in engineering, and I did my I always had a love for literature. So I, after working for a multinational, in 1993, I founded my own magazine. It's an IT magazine in today. And then it was brought over by Karakraft in 1999. Yeah. And I've been there ever since. I've transitioned from uh, editorial to management. You did training before as well, right? Yeah, training during my yeah, yeah, entrepreneurial years. Before Karakraft brought over. Okay, finally, uh, Melissa, age before beauty. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Melissa. Um, I started out as a rookie reporter in Bernama. After a couple of years there, I moved on to do Islamic finance. And then 
got kind of tired of the journalism scene locally and I thought, well, I've got newsroom experience now, maybe I need journalism school experience. So I took a break and I went to do my master's in journalism in Australia, came back and I went, oh no, there are no jobs. I, was, I turned on the radio one day and said, hey, this is quite a cool radio station, what station is this? And it was BFM and I submitted my resume there and ended up working there for eight years. So I've just recently left BFM at the start of this year and I'm now uh, an anchor and an editor at Ezra Wadi where I host a nightly uh, news commentary show as well as a weekly women's empowerment show. Right, okay, so now that we know all the speakers, let's move on to the first question. The first one is really quite controversial. Uh, we wanted to talk about the quality of journalism today. And since all of you have at least, you know, uh, a few years of experience between all of you, I think, is there a century on here? I think it's all. I mean, including me, like, including me, there's probably a century of media experience. Yes, years of experience, do you mention? Mine is about 18 years. Alright, yeah. We're hitting a century. Okay, so uh, with that, um, how has the quality of journalism changed in the last 15 or 20 years? Uh, who wants to go first? Anybody? Stephen Khan! Okay, here we go. How has the quality of journalism changed in the last 15 or 20 years? I, you know, uh, I think definitely, on, um, in one sense, situation has, uh, has gone down to a certain extent uh, because of the fact that with online media uh, you need to be really really fast uh, so the attention span is, is lower uh, people are writing shorter uh, content uh, and all that uh, but I would like to defer in a sense that I think we are today producing some of the best journalism Partly because thanks to technology, because if you look at Panama Papers, um, you know, uh, it, it was a leak of about 10 million uh, uh, documents, you know, 2.6 terabytes of, uh, of uh, you know, data. Um, and here, you know, uh, by using technology, we, can we are able to, to distill, you know, information from, from, from that into, you know, the, the stories that, that, that would actually rock the world to a certain extent which Malaysia team was part of, uh, and that's great. I think, you know, that something like that would not, not, not happen um, um, 10 years ago, for instance, uh, because, you know, that, that it's difficult for someone to really, it would take an entire team, perhaps a few years, to really come up with, you know, the, uh, uh, reports of, uh, to, to, to really distill some of these things and uh, to find the patterns uh, in, in the documents. Um, so I think I think you know that, that in some ways it is, it is, we are doing better journalism today thanks to technology because we are able to use technology to really find patterns in the massive data that we have. Number one, number two, also we are able to actually use technology to actually um, to actually uh, uh, tell our stories better, uh, and it's not just using text, but for graphics, animation, video, everything. So, uh, so in that sense, I think uh, you know I'm really, really positive. I think that journalism is still here to stay, and that we will be, we will continue to produce good journalism. Okay, uh, now I'll turn to this one. So you've come to like you're probably the, the youngest journalist here, and I assume that when you came in, you had some ideals of what journalism should be. Oh yes. And how has that changed now that you've been in the industry? 
well, you know, you, you have your kind of hero reporters and you think that you're going to come in and change the world, right? You're going to come in and make the world a better place. And then when I, I guess when I started, it was a different landscape and I've been very lucky because your question was, what has changed in the past 20 years? And that's the entirety of my career in journalism. So the evolution of it, for me personally, has really been the advent of the 24-hour news cycle. So growing up, I would look at the papers as the benchmark for journalism. I would look at the nightly news as, you know, that's where everyone gathered in front of the TV and that was where you got the news of the day. And then it became this 24-hour news cycle in the last 50 years. And that was at the same time with the rise of social media where everyone has an opinion. A 24-hour news cycle combined with social media just means the speedier dissemination of news. It meant 24 hours, second by second dissemination of news. And while I'm optimistic, like uh, like Stephen, that journalism has gotten better because of technology, I also think there have been trade-offs. I think that very minor news have become major news in the age of 24-hour news cycle. I think that perhaps journalists are limited by the time constraints. And also, I mean, you're feeding this insatiable monster of news. You know, the hunger for news cannot be sated by anything. And um, it is just that, I guess, that has been the biggest change in the past 15 years. Uh, sorry, Asoma, turning to you, eh? So, you were in Star Wars, right? You went there, then you had your vision quest, you went to Microsoft, or DNA and all that, and then you came back. What changed? Uh, well, because when, uh, when I left and when I started ENA, we already went. I agree with you, sir. The 24 new, hour news cycle is really the biggest enemy of journalism. You know, because we need to get news parts. We don't always have the luxury to do all the things that a proper journalist would do, which is to double, to verify. I mean, we do it, right? But it's like really, really. Because with that, we drifting out here. By the time we are able to verify information, social media has gone to town with it, and it may not be accurate. And so we feel the pressure to react even faster. Right? So that's one issue. Uh, what has changed is that uh, when I left, the internet is not killing journalism in the sense that everyone's talking about digital, digital is killing off the newspaper industries. Digital has been around since the Asian Union is now online for more than 25 years. Right? The internet is not mentioned. For me, the two biggest uh, trends in the last few years that is threatening the journalism industry, not just the newspaper industry, the journalists themselves. If you look at all the layoffs that can happen in pure pay digital uh, media in the US, it's one. Uh, So, the, the two biggest trends is one, media consumption uh, behavior has changed uh, and that is being driven by number two, the smartphone, right? Uh, people want the news here and now, they don't want it long, like Stephen was talking, they want short bits. Uh, they, they don't really, in many ways, they don't want to consume journalism, they want to consume talking points that they can go to the Mark's all over, social media and talking. 
without actually clicking and reading articles. Okay, wait. So, ladies and gentlemen, today's topic is who's still in Malaysian media? We have the first suspect. The first suspect is you. Okay, go on. Well, yeah. In fact, it's all of us. <laughs> but we'll go into that later. But yeah, the media consumption behavior has uh, changed. That's why you have... Uh, you see, I like to draw the difference between, say, chili sauce and other curation sites. Chili sauce doesn't just curate, right? So I, I, I have to say I'm a big fan of chili sauce as well, right? Uh, when an issue happens, they go in deep, right? They will feed off our journalism, they will base the stories on what the media breaks, but they go in in a different direction and they put their own journalism around it and they come up with very engaging articles to help explain things. But you see other curation sites where it's just two lines link, two lines link, two lines link. That's not journalism. That's giving you talking points so you can have a uh, chat with your friends. And anecdotally, I find that very few people click on the links. So it's not like 20 years ago there were curation sites as well. But you usually click. So I'm telling you, you want to save journalism, all of us, because journalism is a very important part of democracy. Don't just read the talking points. Click and read the whole articles. Okay, excellent. Um, Nasri, so uh, we have some really interesting talking points there. Right? So I want to get into the quality of journalism and also maybe we go into the difference in consumption of uh, media in the last uh, 20 years. You know, like from when you started to, to now how people are consuming. Uh, just shortly before that, how many people here have actually picked up a magazine before? Okay. Yeah, so you used to run a magazine. Maybe you can start with how journalism was like back in the magazine and what it's like today. Okay. Uh, at one time, we used to have uh, 35 magazines, printed magazines. And now, uh, after the joint venture with Astro, we have only 10 printed magazines. So from there, you can see it has reduced uh, about 70% the printed uh, magazines. But we have websites to replace it, and we're getting more traction that way. So in a way, it's better than before. You have more uh, new visitors, page views, uh, more people who are interested to read. So in that way, uh, it's better than before, because before you have to buy, mainly free. But that's, that is also our challenge, to replace what we lost in the cover price, which was 500 We lost that, and we, are not, we don't have to pay all yet. So we're, uh, we are planning to review of that. So the challenge now is to, to serve our audience, but at the same time, be sustainable. So that is the challenge that uh, I feel that uh, media organizations must uh, take on and uh, try. Otherwise, uh, just, just to add on to the other panel's uh, views, what's uh, affecting us is not just the, the, the choices, the, the public uh, choices to read uh, trivial, quick uh, articles, but actually it's the algorithm. What they say is the algorithm runs the world. The algorithm runs the social media, and the algorithm rewards the articles that are shared, engaged, engaged most, like the likes, and those articles tend to be trivial, uh, entertaining, um, funny, and not uh, intellectual, not educational at all. So I think that's the, the enemy of the quality media. 
the algorithm. Followed by people who surrender themselves to the algorithm. That would be the second enemy of quality media. This, they, they surrender themselves to endless scrolling and they are being fed by the algorithm. So I, I would say one is the algorithm. And we know who's behind those algorithms, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Duopolis, the Internet Warfare. So they run the social media now and the internet, followed by people who uh, succumb to the, to the allure of the algorithm, the mindless feeds, news feeds all day long. So uh, on that point, so basically now you're saying that entertainment uh, and salacious content gets more page views and more uh, shares, which also in a way contributes to the largeness of a site that effectiveness of advertisers and so on and so forth. Then what kind of thought process do you guys put before saying, I want to publish entertainment or I want to publish something intellectual and journalistic? You uh, may refer to Mr. Kimi. has a global site, but it's in English. But then have a Basimesha site, which generates lots of page views. So we also, in a sense, use that strategy. We have to have those uh, popular articles, right? We have to have it. We have to have the necessary or sufficient page views, the unique visitors, which can create, which, which can generate uh, advertising, digital advertising. But we still produce those quality, intellectual, educational, uh, nation-building uh, articles, because it's one of our uh, ethos, which is, uh, to, to be sincere, to be fair, but also to, to contribute to a better nation, a better tomorrow for all nations. So we are some sort of a social uh, business also, not just profit, profit making. So we have to play both games, uh, the popularity game and the nation building game. It, it's sad, but we hope to lure you into good journalism. That's what most newsrooms have to do, right? Catch you with a sexy story. Hopefully, you'll stay on and read the actual news pieces. Yes. Okay. So, Nazri, there was a very, very interesting point just now, where you said that you're running a social business, so that it's not driven by profit, not entirely driven by profit, but driven by some sort of uh, uh, goodwill. You want to do better for mankind. Do you guys agree that journalism has become a social business? Has become, it's always, I mean, I wouldn't use social business, but it's always been about the form estate, right? That's what we're all in here for. I mean, our bosses may think otherwise. I mean, the business owners may think otherwise. They're there, and for them, it's the bottom line. Bottom line, that's most important. But for everyone else in a news organization, that's what you're there for. But do you think that the upper management is driven by profit or profit plus doing some sort of good for society? That goes with different newsrooms now. I, I would like to think so that in ours it's still, you know, we want to do good journalism but make some money out of it so we can pay our people. Thanks. Uh, I, I think journalism is a calling, right? I think, you know, it is not for uh, those who want to make money. Uh, you want to make money, you go into something else. Uh, not, you know, not journalism. So in that sense, it started that way, and I think media organization has always been set up as such as a as as a organization that would provide information so that the people or citizen could be better informed, so that they can make better decisions. I mean, you know, that's the whole idea. The, the, the democracy is basically um, yeah, 
from a vibrant democracy, you need you need to make sure that voters go to the ballot box to make informed choice. And, and, and to do that, you know, is, 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 is that, you know, uh, they, they read the news. Uh, so I think that's the whole idea. Um, but I think in between, you know, a lot of titans and all that, media titans and all that, uh, definitely uh, 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 they were brought into ensuring that uh, media organization make a lot of money. And in, in 10, 20 years ago, they do. In fact, you know, if you look at some of the big media organizations, they are actually pulling in some of the, you know, in terms of percentage, some of the much bigger than a lot of other, other companies. So, but not anymore, though. Um, uh, so I think it is, it is, it is really, uh, at the end of the day, uh, uh, that is what journalism is all about, and that's what journalism should inspire to. Uh, well, of course, for you know, the, the, you need to make a profit uh, because you know the, you need to sustain yourself uh, at the end of the day. Uh, uh, because otherwise, you know, how are you going to be, remain independent if you continue to to rely on, say, for instance, you know, the tycoons uh, to uh, to fund you. If I could just add a little bit on that, but from a different perspective, because they're talking about the perspective of upper management, right? Shareholders making profit. Um, just to ride on Stephen's point about journalism being a vocation and you won't get paid, as you're not going to make big bucks being a journalist. One of the things I'm seeing as a working journalist in a working newsroom in the past 15 years, and this has been a bit of a concern for me, is the rise of the elite newsroom. Because journalism has become quite an elite profession, because it doesn't pay, what happens is you've got people, young journalists from very elite and privileged backgrounds becoming journalists, young journalists. When I was a rookie reporter, there was a guy with me who had SBM qualification. He didn't have a degree, but he worked the ranks, right? And he, he, he rose to the ranks because he was a really hard-working, smart, smart young uh, reporter. But now you have, you know, graduates from Ivy Leagues competing for internships in journalism or in newsrooms with um, not just local graduates, but people who don't have degrees. Now, what's that, what that has um, kind of created are newsrooms that are homogenous and herd mentality. So that's the kind of trend that I'm keeping my eye on. Newsrooms that don't reflect the diversity that we want to see in our news reporting. Wow, oh, didn't know about that. People in Ivy Leagues are flying. Yeah, I mean, so when I was in, sorry, well, I mean, when I was in BFM, we had great interns, but many of my interns were um, Ivy League graduates, or in, in between, in between um, semesters. And I, I see a former intern of mine here, who's also who's also from a, a very prestigious school, Russian, raise your hand. <laughs> so you know. It, the danger is when all, because we have so few newsrooms, when newsrooms and so few reported jobs, when those jobs are filled by people who are of a certain social class, what kind of reporting are we getting? What happens when the fourth estate is almost indistinguishable from all the other estates that they are watching? What happens if the reporter is the Anna of the Bansri, of the minister of whatever, right? You don't want that. We want to be more mindful of that. Yeah, so in the first time, I'm so proud to be a dropout. <laughs> but is this a problem with English language newsrooms? I don't think, uh, maybe you can tell us well, about well, So, Awani is a predominant, it's, it's a Malay language newsroom, um, but I am looking after the English belt. 
um, it's a crossover because Malaysians are bilingual. So you, you know, the, the children of the privileged study abroad, but they are fluent in, in both languages, in multi-languages. So it's, I think, also in, in the main newsrooms as well. Okay. I, I do know there was one stage, not so much now, but a few years ago, we used to have the same problem. It's because you have to have the children of the privileged come into the newsrooms because uh, if you try to make a career out of it, it's not going to pay much. So hopefully, mommy and daddy will take well, care of yeah, all the bills. Yeah, that's the thing, right? You only you are a journalist because you've got a trust fund. You're a journalist because you're not worrying about the bills at the end of the day because mommy and daddy will pay for it. So the, the you know regular folk who are trying to make ends meet don't see journalism as a valid profession, which is a shame. Right. Uh, at Chili Sauce, we have a BM edition as well, and it's run by an ex Kazana guy. Uh, but he actually took a pay cut. Uh, he said he, it wasn't a pay cut because uh, based on the amount of hours he was working at Kazana, he earned more per hour at Chili Sauce, apparently. So you're an elitist newsroom. Yeah, right? maybe, I don't know, yeah. Uh, but we call, he's not Melayu, we call him Melayu TTDI, it's a bit different. Yeah. That's a different category altogether. Yeah. <laughs> That's an A plus category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not half. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think, you know, really, uh, it really depends on the media organization and mission that that that, that it has, um, because I know of a lot of journalists who are willing to take pay cuts to join uh, the you know, number of media organizations, and I salute them really. I think you know that uh, Malaysia continue to not pay market rate for many many years, and and yet you know we got also people joining Malaysia TV because of mission, because they want to tell the you know want to tell the truth. Help truth the power and the power to come and all that, um, and, and it's amazing, really. I think there are people willing to do that, um, uh, but of course, you know, you cannot, you cannot not pay them, you know, the proper wages. <laughs> eventually, will, will come you yeah, that's right. Eventually, eventually, you need to do that. But I think there are people who are willing to make that sacrifices, and and really, I think we should encourage that to an extent because I think really journalism is all about at least you know they're, they're, they're making some sacrifices in order to pursue you know, our passion. Can I just say that, I mean, it's a Sunday. Uh, I'm sure we all have things to do, especially the younger people, but I see so many young people here coming to a talk about journalism and, you know, giving out journalism a lot You know, this is very fascinating. Also, I mean, uh, before we forget, like, MIDP uh, organizing debates, uh, I think part of the conversation is also having a conversation like this. You know, so we can actually analyze our thoughts, find new perspectives, and we need an audience for that. And so, thank you so much for coming for this uh, uh, talk today. Uh, so, moving on, um, one of the things I want to talk about is when exactly we started seeing this downturn in journalism. Um, because you said, uh, was it you as well, or Stephen? It said uh, it I used to be about revenue or enthusiasm. For uh, let's say let's talk financials right now. Financials. Okay. Uh, well, depending on which country uh, you're talking about, it's been happening for about 15 years. I think in uh, Malaysia, it also depends on which media organizations you're talking about. But in the last five years, it's been it's been a carnage. You know, to borrow Donald Trump's misused word. Okay. Yeah. So I happen to know about some things about the, the Star News team. Can you give us some numbers about how that number has been reduced? Ah. Well, you know, it's 
Uh, we're a public listed company, so the numbers are out there anyway. Uh, I know we have very good cash reserves, but in terms of profits... Manpower. Manpower. Yeah. We've gone through two... Uh, in the last two years, we've gone through two rounds of layoffs, right? Uh, uh, mutual separation scheme, and this is uh, in addition to a BSS scheme yet five years ago. So our numbers are down tremendously. Uh, this is where you know, we also depend on technology, like Stephen was talking, because now we've got fewer people who need to do more. And that's a challenge across newsrooms across the world. Okay, so let's say we rewind the clock about five or six years ago. What was the size of the news team covering Malaysia? And today, what is it? Oh, I think we had about 40% more, 50%. Compared to last time. Oh, compared to last five years ago. So 50% down. Yeah. And In terms of editorial people. And the amount of content you guys are generating is? Uh, the newspaper is a lot thinner these days. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking to the online guy. Less that doesn't make a difference. Time. We still have produced the same amount of content. Right? I, I think a lot of public uh, do not really understand, perhaps are not, they don't have the, um, how to put it, news, news organization has always been quite profitable many, many years, uh, thanks to advertising. Uh, you know, the companies are willing to actually pay a lot of money to advertise the product or the services, whatever it is. Um, and because of the fact that media organization has almost complete monopoly on dissemination information, uh, they can actually, uh, you know, uh, 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 pull in quite a lot of advertising. That has changed. Uh, I think the world has changed. Thanks to uh, Facebook, uh, no thanks to Facebook and, uh, and Google. <laughs> The reason why that has changed is because uh, media organization cannot compete with these big multi-billion companies uh, because of the fact that you know we cannot deliver the kind of audience that, that these guys can promise. I mean because they know their audience, they know the people much better than us. Because through your likes, through the people that you're talking to, through your searches in your computer, they, can, they have profiles of who you are, what's your interest and all that. And they can tell the companies and say, look, if you advertise through us, we're able to deliver you the people that you are looking for. Say you are selling cosmetic, well, you know, we're able to send you the, the audience, to give you the audience that, that will most likely buy your product, not some other people who may not have interest in your advertisement. So I think you know, that's where uh, media organization like us are not able to actually compete with them because we do not know our audience as good as they are because we do not have that kind of technology. So I think that increasingly we are losing out uh, to the point where we actually you know, they're, they're, they're providing space in our website to, 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 you know, for Google to serve uh, their ads to. They will take a big cut. So companies will go to Google and say, look, you know, they'll pay a certain amount of money. And uh, Google will serve the ads to wherever, it could be blogs or it could be website, could be Star, Malaysia yeah. TV, you know, the current network, whatever it is. Uh, the, and, you know, the, they will take a big cut, they will take 30-40%. So instead of companies coming direct to us, and we earn all the money, uh, it's no longer the case. Because Google is earning most of the money without doing anything, really. Just by, you know. Sorry, so quick one. Just a quick one to add to what Stephen was saying, the economics of the media industry right now. Uh, I'm always uh, taken aback when people point at news organizations. See, you guys didn't uh, invest in digital, you're so dependent on print. 
No. All, I'm pretty sure it's the same case with you. We've always been investing in digital. The big difference is, especially in the last five years, is that all the investments we put into our digital operations, according to estimates, 60 or 80 percent of the ad revenue go to Google and Facebook. They don't produce any content. They are sucking off our content to make money. And we put in the investment. We do the journalism. We're not seeing it. It's not that we've ignored digital. No, I'm pretty I can't think of any single media company in Malaysia that did not invest millions in digital over the last 15 years. It's not new to us, but we didn't account for the platform companies. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, suspect number two, Facebook and Google. Okay? Let's keep going. Nasri, yes. As for us, uh, things really got back uh, five years ago. Uh, before that, we, we were making money, although not much. But uh, we went from 400 uh, editorial staff to now 200. We went from eight printed editions for almost all the states in the peninsula Malaysia to only one national edition. But we still uh, publish eight editions on the social media and you know, online. So it's been really tough. And also, uh, as Asuhan said, we uh, invested a lot on technology. But sometimes the returns is not there. Yeah? Sometimes uh, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe it's uh, become obsolete. Maybe it's not the right technology. So yeah. it's, it's sometimes it's, uh, it's a bit of a miss technology, technology-wise. So I feel that one of the prerogatives to, to make money in media nowadays is to know, uh, master, if you can master at least, you are aware of the technology step. Technology step meaning uh, what your technology is built on, how it's going to evolve in the future, and how that you going to make money from the ROIs from your investment. Otherwise, it's going to be a big day. Make the conclusion that I think there's no way to make money from printed media. There's no way. It's a losing battle. It's a losing game. I think within five to ten years, we, don't, we won't see any printed magazines nor newspapers, especially newspapers. Uh, that's a sad truth, but uh, I think our, our numbers show, numbers don't lie. But the, the challenge is now, how do we make money online? That's the next challenge. And we need uh, editorial, we need uh, management that understands, like I said, the tech stack, the digital marketing, the content marketing. It's a new booking that uh, Mr. Gansin to know our audience, we need to install uh, what we call um, data management platform, DPN. We need to install uh, CRM. We need to install <laughs> various other technologies. And these usually come from the Western world. And they are not cheap. I think with the exception of Malaysia Kini, they build their own. So heads off to them. But we do, we do not have the, the expertise, nor the, the patient. We don't have time, it's not on our side here. So sometimes it's better to just buy off the shelf. But like I said, it's not. Sometimes it's a hit and miss. You don't get the ROI of the investment that you make in, in uh, technology. Yes, sir? Just a little bit, because you guys were talking about um, the profitability of the newsroom, right? So, uh, in terms of advertising. If we can look at it from the subscription, because I don't have anything to do with advertising, I'm not at, that's out of my pay, anyway, <laughs> to look at advertising. But 
looking at subscription, and I'm just going to use a personal anecdote. So we've just gotten so used to getting news for free online. Just so, thanks, it's not online, but you've got by the way. Just gotten so used to getting free Suspect news. Suspect number three, it's not online. They almost like that. We've got free news online, right? But okay, so we've just gotten used to getting free news online. That when the paywalls came up, we went, what? Why do I have to pay for news? I can get free off my Twitter feed or my Facebook posts or whatever, right? And I just say that requires a mindset shift for us news consumers. We really have to get to be okay again with paying for news. Like you, like your parents bought the papers every morning. You had a, a you know the newspaper guy delivery guy through your newspaper under your dad's car. You paid for that. That was that was paid for. Now we. So I was just telling Stephen before we started. My personal story is that for the past few years, I've been freeloading off my company's Malaysia TV subscription. <laughs> so I've just been using the mass password to read all the news. And in the last year, I have seen the quality of news that Malaysia TV has put out. I mean, it's just they've just you know up the game for everyone in, in journalism with their special reports and their interacting with data journalism, the Sunak Kim Kim coverage was you know, phenomenal, Stephen. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to be a private subscriber. I'm going to pay for good journalism. And I'm a journalist, can you believe that? So I have to say, we have to get used to the concept of paying for what we used to get for free because everything comes at a cost. Now, you pay for cloud storage. Why can't you pay for good, sir, for good journalism, right? You pay for Spotify streaming, pay for Netflix, or what, what is wrong with paying? Was it uh, 200 ringgit a year for Malaysia TV um, subscription? That was a free plug, sorry. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me for Malaysia TV. Very, very much appreciated. Uh, I was also for that, so. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about the financials. So, uh, let's change cards a little bit and let's talk about how it's affecting your coverage. Okay? Because uh, we talked about the 24 hour news cycle. Uh, you know, so we want, we want it fast, we want it cheap. You know, then what's got to give? Something's got to give, right? So, uh, that's what we need to start with this one. Okay. We, uh, we have less editorial stuff now. So, that's the challenge. How much less? Uh, half. Half. So about the same. Yeah. Both yeah. you guys about the same. Half, yeah. Where do these journalists go? Uh, <laughs> some program. <laughs> some join the government, I hear. Yes, that too. Yes. Okay, sorry. I personally have not felt uh, our quality have dropped because we equip our staff with the latest gadgets, uh, technology, workflows. We try to convert our industry to digital first, mobile first. <coughs> uh, we try to get uh, help from uh, other news sources where we cannot do coverage. We, we buy the stories. So to me, uh, our reporting has not suffered. We have uh, always turned up the same quality of uh, articles, uh, features. Uh, but of course, we can always do better with more stuff. Uh, so to me, uh, we have to accept the fact journalists have to do more. They have to be video journalists, uh, photo journalists. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, we have to live with it. I think quality should So everyone just has to do more and work harder. Do more and work harder. For less pay. Yeah. 
and especially wow. for online, it's almost 24 hours around the clock. From from home, from home, from the bathroom. Anyway, <laughs> I just went to study uh, fast. Now, who wants to be a journalist? <laughs> oh, hey, one, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. Wow, this is like Lala in my garden. Seven. <laughs> yeah, just, just to add to that. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, it's not just the number of people you reduce, but for many national news organizations doing mainstream news, especially we cover everything, we have to close down bureaus. So if something happens in uh, Kedah, for instance, you don't uh, Alostan, you don't have someone on the ground anymore. You know, you have to recall someone from another city to go there, right? So uh, perfect example was the Irish girl who got lost, right? Do you have the numbers? Can you send a full team there? Things were happening every day. There were briefings. You don't have a full team. Some news organizations decided, okay, you know, we will send a few people. We'll have a full crew there. So they wrote all the stories much faster than the news organizations that were struggling because it costs money to do journalism, right? And uh, Lisa is right. I think every news uh, organization in Malaysia, especially in the last few years, have actually discussed putting up paywalls. Whether they do or not, we don't know. Uh, some have said they're going to, but then decided not to, but to KID for a while. But I think it's going to happen. You all, journalism costs money, and you guys are going to have to pay for it sooner or later. But it's, it's, if I understand the dynamic correctly, it's kind of like a game of chicken right now, right? Everyone's looking at each other going like, who's going to do the paywall first? Because if you do it first, then I'll get the page views, and then my advertisers will pick up. That's okay, so that's correct. Uh, okay, Stephen, what do you think about uh, how the lack of resources has affected journalism and, and the 24-hour news cycle and the uh, public diet? I, I, you know, for those who want to be journalists, really, I, I salute you. I think uh, it's not an easy job. You need to be always switched on, you know, to, uh, maybe 24 hours in that sense, you know, just as. Uh, our audience expect us to deliver news uh, 24 hours. So I think at least, at least it, it requires special, you know, special species to really, uh, to, to really, uh, to, uh, for someone who can do well as journalists. Um, and it's not for everyone, so in that sense. Uh, but that said, I think you know, that, uh, a lot of media organizations tend to, um, in order, well, they get tempted to actually uh, uh, go for clickbait. I think, you know, that, uh, in order to grow audience and all that, um, and the easiest way to look at you know the the, the most read uh, news is always sex and crime. I think you know the, uh, the uh, incest always gets high. Yeah, something like that. Incest, yeah. I don't know what it is. Um, I I think for Malaysia, Kini, we are we are fortunate in the sense that we are a social political news uh, site. Uh, we do sex and crime as well, but you know it's sex videos and INDB scandal and all that. <laughs> A lot of corruption. Yes, that's right. I mean, you know, the, so that's enough, you know, for us to uh, uh, for us to actually satisfy our audience. But uh, I, I think you know, really, um, the, um, uh, while we need to while we need to um, uh, to ensure that um, uh, we deliver, you know, the, the news on time and all that uh, to, to as quick as possible. But at the same time, I think there is still. Audience out there who appreciate longer pieces, more in-depth pieces, people like Melissa and all that, uh, which we attempt try to do uh, 
every now and then. I think that is important, and if you can find a mix of that, uh, I think you can do pretty well. Okay, so I have a lead-on question there, Stephen, sorry. Um, with regards to the coverage that uh, Melissa talked about, your data journalism, your hard rates of news about the Bangladeshi uh, deaths, uh, how much traction does that get versus, you know, Najib uh, Bolai infection? <laughs> You're right. I think, I think, you know, Najib Bolai infection, or Najib about, you know, the fact that he's complaining about the seed is not good enough, uh, uh, is causing him, you know, to have the hernia or whatever it is. Um, that, that's always been, you know, it's just the way it is. I think, you know, people tend to attract to that kind of news. Um, but I think, you know, that at the end of the day, really, uh, uh, you need to also provide, you know, the in-depth information. Uh, um, and I, you know, the, the, and there still be audience for it, uh, rather than we focusing on just delivering, you know, sort of sexy news uh, to our audience. Can I, can I just add a little yeah, bit sure. to that? Just it's supply and demand, right? We can supply great quality, but what does it matter if no one cares about it or needs it? I was at a forum um, once and someone said something that made me want to cry. Um, this person said, what's in the newsroom, said, if the news article is not being shared, is it, is it even worth writing? And I was so disheartened by that comment and I thought to myself, well, if you're going to write something that is just for the sake of you know, readers to share, then what kind of journalism is that? It is journalism that is baiting on your emotions, right? It is journalism that feeds on fear and anger and smugness and distrust. And is that really what we want to read? So I would say that as much as quality journalism is you know, desired, quality news consumption is also important. When you are the demand, when we are the supply. So you have to demand for good things. You can't just click on the incest and the racial polarization and the boycott of this and that and Najib's eye infection. You have to also want to consume things that make you smarter, that makes you more talented, that makes you a better citizen. So it really is up to not just journalists, but also news consumers. Okay, sorry, I have a, a counterpoint to that, uh, in the sense that we, I, I actually had a, a, a conversation with uh, your, your colleague Shara. She, was Shara here? Yeah. Yeah, Shara was here. Shara Kutun. Are you in the audience? No, you tell me here. Okay, I see. Okay. Um, so, so I had a conversation with Shara when he was with BFM uh, on this very topic, in saying that. Yes, um, you should write something even though uh, it's not something people are inherently interested in. But if no one reads it, is it really getting out there? And should we be doing more to try and sell it to our audience? Uh, I think you'll find that most news organizations are aware of that. That's why uh, many of them pay attention to social media, although we don't like to. Social media is a way of broadcasting your stories, right? Uh, I have just two anecdotal bits of data to add to it. Uh, it just happened that uh, late last week we were reviewing our numbers and we found that in the last three months the most read story, uh, and you know the star covers everything, including sex, violence and stuff like that, right? Uh, was a political story. Unfortunately it was a Nazbin Ali sex video story. So. Second is the political sex story. The best kind of political story. But fusion food. Yeah, but 
there's an, another thing is because, uh, and I've seen it with some uh, media posters as well, everyone talks about the numbers and the great thing about digital is you can actual, get actual data on how many people are reading your stuff at any one time, right? Uh, but they tend to look at very short-term views. So we've also noticed, for instance, that if you go by the daily or the weekly uh, news-read stories, it's going to be of the clickbaitish kind. But if you stretch over a period of three months or six months, you find that the long form, more uh, analytical pieces, they may not be number one, they may not be the most strikingly read stories, but they tend to do well as well. So like uh, the Stars Rage team, uh, the Sex and Predator, even after four, three, four years, people are still reading that stuff. That's the Sex and Predator. Yeah. But then the we did, uh, the Rage team did a fantastic listing on uh, foreign students coming here as well. Still. So it, it, it did shoot up the charts when it uh, was first aired or published online. But there's consistent uh, consumption of those articles. So that there is still some, a lot of uh, economic value as well beyond the journalism in producing very thoughtful pieces and doing investigative journalism. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you guys have not heard of Rage, basically it's the uh, video investigative arm of the start. Uh, we have one of the most award-winning uh, teams out there running Rage right now. So if you guys have never heard of it, please go and check it out. It's amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, they wait like months for a break and they go over across other countries to track stories. Um, maybe you can just very, very quickly explain to us how that makes financial sense. <laughs> well, you know, it doesn't. <laughs> this is one of the things that you as a news organization do because it's important. Although I have to say, in the last uh, year and a half, they have been uh, paying, the Rage team led by Year Me, have been paying more attention to making themselves more financially sustainable. They've got some great ideas, they've done various things. Uh, but I wonder if they could have uh, done it if it was an independent unit that was not heavily financed for a big for a big media organization. But now they they do it. They are by themselves they can do it already. But the first couple of years it requires tremendous amount of uh, investments in terms of resources. I mean you may think that right, it's just you know, you're not doing work. There's opportunity cost of loss. There's the stuff that you have to pay salaries for months with no story coming in view. You know, I mean actually they did other things as well, but you know this is the main focus. So you need a big media organization kind of set up or a very tightly uh, planned one like Malaysia Kini, you know, but what we did with the Panama Papers and all that, you can dedicate resources to it. Okay, okay. Uh, we have uh, uh, 10 minutes left. So uh, we'll ask last two questions and after that, we're going to open it up for Q&A from the topic. Uh, how many minutes of Q&A do you have later? 10-15 minutes, so maybe about like four to five questions, so rush from the mics, guys. Um, okay, so last two questions. Second last question is, what do you wish the public knew about media today? Okay, what the public should know is that we are at the end of the cliff, uh, cliff. at the edge of the cliff. You can fall uh, either way, as you can see from the Utusan uh, uh, episode saga. We almost closed. So same thing with us. We, I can say we, we closed seven edition, of eight edition, winter edition to one edition now, uh, and we have uh, retrenched half of our editorial staff. 
So I hope that uh, the public can support us, advertise with us, uh, buy our subscription and put up the paywall. And good journalism takes effort and money. And uh, if we die, then all you are left with are the clickbaity, the frivolous, the entertaining, the funny videos. Uh, the less informed you feel they are, they are informed. But unfortunately, you don't know what you don't know. So to be informed, you have to seek out those organizations like uh, that you have in front of you and follow them. And subscribe to them. And also, don't forget Sina <laughs> What do I wish the public knew about the media business? I think one of the things that journalists take for granted is, you know, we we kind of live and die on our deadlines, right? We, we just set up our watches to deadlines and that's how we live our lives. I don't think anyone else normal, like regular people, live like that. Because people don't live on deadlines. And with news, it used to be a daily deadline that you would give, you set your watch to. But in a 24-hour news cycle, there is no deadline. Every second is a deadline, because every second someone wants a new headline in their Twitter feed, right? So that limits considerably what a journalist can do, in, given those constraints. And everything that we talked about, and I hope that this kind of informs you when you read something or when you watch something or listen to something, um, that you think about what it takes to put out that piece of news, right? It is not just the headline. Some, not some, there wasn't just one person sitting in front of a computer writing that headline. It was, for instance, in BFM, half an hour of talk meant a week of preparation. So before I did an interview with the minister, I would sit and research that for hours on end, and that was at, on my own time, not, not the time that I was on air. So, you know, there, come, there is, I guess, there are constraints to the journalism that we put out, and for you to be mindful of that when you consume the news, because sometimes you go, hey, how come they can talk to all the stakeholders? You try and get all the stakeholders to talk to you when you have a two-hour deadline. It's tough. So, I, I just want the public to be mindful of that when they are consuming. Thank you. Stephen? Taking on from what Melissa said, I think definitely it is for journalists or for media organization per se, uh, it's really, really hard for us to plan. I mean, you know, the, at the end of the day, we will work out uh, some of the uh, some of the events that's going to happen the next day, who to send and all that to cover those events, uh, what is likely that we would uh, like to follow up, you know, some news stories today that we want to follow up tomorrow, uh, all that. I mean, you know, there, there's some measure of planning there. But a lot of time, when there's a news break, you know, everything goes up uh, to work, uh, you know, that, uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, you have to start a new. Uh, uh, you have to reorganize your, 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 your journalists, uh, you know, that, uh, move them elsewhere. I have, you know, sometimes we have a situation where we have a journalist on the way to cover an event. And midway through, we would call that person and say, look, forget about this go somewhere else because something happened uh, and that happens like that so you have a situation where journalists who are already mindset already said that i'm going to cover this event i'm going to interview these people these are the questions i'm going to ask and this is more or less what i'm going to do for today but then suddenly you know just like that uh, that person will be doing something else and it's completely unplanned for so for us it's like that really and this business is really a situation where you know that after the end of the day 
the next day you'll be completely doing something really, you know, uh, something different. It's not like you're making washing machine. You can plan, you know, in terms of, okay, yeah, tomorrow we're going to do more or less the same thing, right? But not in journalism. Really, you know, every day is different. And it's make it a lot more exciting, makes it a lot more interesting. But, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty that goes on in journalism. And as I say, it required, you know, the people who are flexible enough to be able to, to, to reorganize the thoughts and the mindset to, to, to really be to really be good journalists. So many things. <laughs> so many things. So to the few young people who said they want to be journalists and all that, this may sound very uh, disheartening and discouraging. But I'll tell you one thing. It's a crappy job, but it's a beautiful calling, right? It's, it's fantastic. Your pain will be and Stephen has just given you the kind of things that everyone does. There's a reason why I went back into journalism after making really good money with a US multinational. Uh, and it's also a reason I still remember uh, May 9th, or rather May 10th last week. And when that change in government happened, and all I could do was sit back and say, Oh my God, I'm so glad I'm in the newsroom today. There's no feeling of that. You were the first ones with the news. You, were, you saw, you witnessed history right before your eyes and you were part of that history. And I'm sure Malaysia, everyone is, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're pro-BN or pro-Pakatan or whatever, you were there when history was being made. You know, very few other professions give you that, right? So don't be discouraged. Second is when we're talking about who's killing Malaysian media, we spoke about everyone else. Uh, the, other, the other party that has to take responsibility is the government. We have very repressive media laws in this country. In the previous session, uh, I don't know what the debate was about, but at the end of it, the crowd were asked to vote whether the government should be allowed to control the press, and 80% of the audience said yes. Right? This is what's going to kill journalism, folks. Right? There may be reasons you can ask for a responsible press, but you do not need repressive laws to get responsibility. There are enough laws in this country even without the printing and publication center. And third, we journeys ourselves, right? So, not all of us do a great job. Not all of us are really driven to be really great journalists. And sometimes we don't fight the fights we need to, we don't we back up from battles we need to fight. So that's something, that's the other party that's built your way, right? I, I mean, I agree with Stephen, the first question, journalism, I think there's still great quality, good quality journalism, but we need to be stronger on our side as well, right? And it's a battle. The final thing I like, I say, I mean, just to say, there are always fights. You guys don't know it because you think it's a single organization, we come up with one point of view. The number of fights we have in the newsroom, we wouldn't leave it. I'm so surprised because when I get into the world, I use a lot of profanities. I'm here in a public place, so I can't speak what I call my newsroom language. There's a lot of cussing, there's a lot of cursing that goes on in any newsroom. We're not united, but we are a team. Right? In the end, we all believe in what we're doing. We have different points of views, we fight. Finally, you guys want to keep journalism alive, don't get your news articles via your social media feeds. Go back to the old style 10, 15 years ago. You like the news website, bookmark it, 
go there directly. Do not pass go. Do not pass Google. Do not pass Facebook. Go to the news site directly. Help us stay, keep journalism alive. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, actually, you know, without that, that uh, summarizes the last question I had, which was how journalism contributes to society and Malaysia Day and all that. So I think Aswan ended it brilliantly already. So I would like to close off the panel since we're running out of time. Ladies and gentlemen, another round of applause for our panelists. We would like to open up the floor for questions now. First hand up. Oh, wow, that's fast. Okay, uh, this over there. Yes. Yeah, so can you uh, pass the, the mic around? Sorry. There's a wireless mic, yeah. So I'll uh, share this mic with you guys. Uh, please say uh, who you are, where you're from, uh, what your question is, and who is our actor Hi, I'm Kwani. I'm from PJ. Uh, I would like to ask how things have changed uh, after the change of government. Especially pertaining to the news industry. Thank you. Uh, who like this? I I think it's been pretty good. Freedom of speech was definitely part of the conversation, but in terms of the daily uh, 
uh, you know, you talk to someone else about it, it's not so much about whether or not you're going to get imprisoned, but whether or not you're going to get fired.
that's the only, only way to get around it. Okay, next question. Uh, hi, Fadli uh, here. Uh, I just came by from Manish. So uh, I think yeah, I agree that uh, technology plays a big role in the current change of how consumers approach the media. Uh, but however, is it not true also that the content is also more important in uh, uh, getting more people to consume your media? So I think uh, most of the time we see what we discuss is uh, on, that, uh, on the surface level, I think. Um, so I think we, we, we are lacking uh, things like the uh, hard topic, hard issue, uh, like the principle uh, root of, of uh, uh, things being discussed. So these are things as sensitive to controversial. So do you think these are uh, what, we, what people want and they cannot get? So that's why they, are, they don't take media seriously. Uh, okay, let me just clarify the question there. I'll try to uh, shorten it. You think the do you think uh, we are lacking this kind of content? That's why we, we don't have uh, enough consumption. Okay, Aswan, why don't you take this one? Uh, the numbers show that's not true. I mean, all of us, all of our problems are very deep and uh, very great for us. The numbers are not there. I know people visualize. It's like I said, it's the most famous one in the last few months was the Nazmin Ali sex So that's it. There is actually go any news website, any of the credible news websites in Malaysia right now. I think you will find that content you're looking for is just not up there. It's not being fed into your social media. The content is there. Just need to explore. We try to present them on our homepages, but it's not getting picked up. And I think all of us are doing great journalism. My competitors and investment are doing There are great stories out there. Just not being ready. So I just going to add a little bit to that. So you mentioned technology, right? What you also don't realize, and we touched on this a bit earlier, is that the algorithm determines what comes up first on your feed. So if you are clicking on sex stories and crime stories instead of institutional reform, those stories come up in your feed. And that's why you're probably thinking, why are there no discussions about institutional reform and the roots of corruption and philosophical discussions about you know, education and all that? It, it's really what you click in most. And that's how technology and the algorithm works. One more question? Yeah, next question. Hi, uh, my question is directed primarily to Melissa, but also to the rest of the panel. Um, as someone who's been in radio as well as daily TV, I think you've noticed in the past 10 to 15 years, um, especially in the West, a lot of news or media is gravitating more towards like polarizing or partisan views, so like Fox News, for example. Um, do you think then that the media should then, you know, in, in terms of like revenue or whatever, should start gravitating more towards? more polarizing partisan views rather than trying to appeal to the middle, which I think is, you know, I mean, not many people like the middle, but there are very much partisan people who are willing to pay to find the information that they think supports their views. Wow. Thanks for that. All right. Um, sorry, Melissa, before that, he says his question is related. Oh, okay. Do you think um, 
media um, should have a stance in reporting. Is it correct, or rather, is it possible to have a neutral media at all? Thanks. Wow. Okay. Both really excellent questions. Um, actually, I would like Melissa to answer, and then uh, Nasri as well. Yeah, definitely. I'll keep it quite brief as well. I think one of the things that we need to be clear about is there is a difference between reporting the news and commentating on the news. Okay? There's commentary and there's reportage. So when you're reporting the news, you need to be absolutely objective. You need to present the facts, you need to present all sides of the stories to the best of your ability. And when you're reporting the news, everyone, reporters included, has bias. Biases, right? So I've been trained to report against my bias. If I'm biased a certain way, I report against my bias when I'm reporting the news. When it comes to commentary, that's a different thing. In the age of the trillion channel news uh, choices, you can pick whatever news outlet you want that feeds into or, or I guess affirms your worldview, right? You can choose Fox if you are you lean that way, you can choose CNBC if you lean the other way, and it just affirms your worldviews and that your worldviews. So I think that most media organizations have discovered if they want to be different, they have to be media with a point of view, media with a, a bias or a stance or a slant. And while that may color the commentary of the news, a good newsroom will not let it color the daily reportage of reporting, or the daily news reporting. Um, and I think news consumers need to make that distinction between what is your daily bulletin, your daily news article, what is reporting facts, and those that is commentary, those that are commentary. And then if you so want to read something that affirms your worldview, go ahead and read something that affirms your worldview. But if you want to do it better person, my advice is once in a while, go read something outside of your echo chamber. Just to make you a whole rounded person. Once in a while, go and see what Pass is up to, what Haraka is saying. Just once in a while. And it actually makes you a better person. So I think that is um, literacy uh, awareness, um, media literacy. And when it comes to journalists, I think most good newsrooms keep the biases out of it. So I hope that answers your questions. And I can also add that there's no uh, fully or 100% neutral media organization. There's always somebody who owns it, there's always an editor, there's always a person writing it, and that person is one way biased or one way or another. Even in news reporting, I may add, you can report on something, you cannot report on something. So that itself is biased. Which story do you put on your homepage? That itself is biased. So, uh, I concur with Melissa, you have to read from many sources. Seek, seek those sources, the, the left, the right, the center, the conservative, the liberals. Make up your mind. I think that's the best, that's the, the best way to get the, the truly uh, rounded, holistic uh, view of the story. So, uh, just to share, actually it's also, so, uh, we try to have some sort of balance, but we're always you know, biased in our own directions. So what I actually did was I, I got a friend to add me into a BN chat group. Uh, WhatsApp chat group, so I get to see. Oh, it's it's so much fun! You guys should just try it. You know, if you guys are not in the BN chat group, uh, you actually get a lot of scoops. So we got a few scoops actually from that BN chat group. I'm not going to say which one it is in case any of you have to me out after this. Uh, but yeah, like like they say, seek the other view. It's really really important. It'll make you a better person. Sorry. Next question. 
Hello, my name is Lisa. I'm from UITM Dunkil. So, as the form mentioned, right, we have media laws and so on and so forth. So, how do you proofread as editors, especially um, those articles who are very controversial and sensationalized, especially in our current media? Thank you. Okay, actually, the person who can answer that is right in front of you. His name is Yu Huang, so he's the editor of Ask Legal. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I'll answer on his behalf. Do you want one particular person here to answer? or Any, Anybody. Okay, so I'll, I'll give it to Steven. No? no? Melissa. Okay, I'll give it to Melissa. Huh? Okay, so um, our, our view is that the more controversial it is, the more you have to stick to the facts. Right? So basically, if you're talking about the, 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 the four R's, okay? Race, religion, royalty, Rosma, you have to stick to the facts. Okay? Yeah, you don't go outside of the facts because the more you go outside of the facts, that's when it gets dangerous. Whereas on something casual like, you know, social media or whatever, then you can afford a little bit of commentary. Sorry, I just want to add also, so not just the sensationalized part, but sometimes this is where diversity in newsrooms and in the upper management of newsrooms is important. It's important to have women as editors in newsrooms because sometimes men can see a headline and not hear the tone of it, right? It's important to have different races in your editorial leadership so that what may feel like you may be tone deaf to certain things that other people are more sensitive about. So this is where diversity plays a huge role. And if you look at some newsrooms and you see the same kind of homogenous class, it's a problem. So I think that's where we have to also be quite uh, mindful about. Oh, you see sex, sex, you don't want yeah, to hear that. Oh, sex, <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. Uh, I think uh, we have time for maybe, what, two more questions, maybe? One more, last one, last question. Hi, Nishan uh, from Amnesty International Malaysia. Um, my question is about. Um, I had in my head when I formulated. A lot of what was spoken today, I think, is really directly with my question. Uh, we were talking just now about algorithms, and then we were talking about headlines that are sensationalized, that is clickbait, and so on and so forth. In the past year, since the change of the government, we've seen um, a lot of stories that have been sensationalized, particularly to minority groups such as LGBTI people, migrant issues, refugees, and so on. And when one news comes out, it's just like a wildfire of sensationalized um, um, narrative that may be derogatory and discriminatory. Therefore, my question is, do you think that the media, especially editors, journalists, and writers, require training to write these kind of stories, and specifically, maybe from these grassroots communities. Thank you. Uh, wow. Okay, who's going to take that one? Okay, okay, Steven, here.
for all the issues, political views, you come together and discuss those issues. I, I, I think, you know, we need to be, you know, for those who are liberal, for instance, they need to be alerted about the fact that there are people who do not share and who are completely very different uh, from them in their views. And you think that these are, you know, uh, these are views that uh, are completely politically correct or whatever it is, uh, but fair enough, yes, they are politically correct, but they cannot be ignored because, because even against the media ignore all those reports, all those news, social media is ready to be And that is what happened in the United States because Donald Trump did not have to rely on mainstream media to report about all this. You know, that, uh, uh, social media is ready to be So I think you know, increasingly, uh, uh, mainstream media has lost its, its monopoly in a sense. Uh, social media has ended that. was a piece of the salasin.10 podcast area it is hoped that you have enjoyed it if you have any issues please feel free to leave a comment through any of the channels
that was a piece of the Salasin.10 podcasterium. It is hoped that you have enjoyed it. If you have any issues, please feel free to leave a comment through any of the channels.